Israel, tell me when we're live. Oh, we're live right now? Okay. We're live from Crown Heights, from uh, a world-famous Rabashkin home on uh, President Street. And we're joined by an illustrious, real-life, in-person crowd of... Uh, Noshim Titkonyas from uh, Crown Heights, as well as a virtual crowd from all over the world. Okay, and it is Yud Kislev, Rosh Hashanah So I suppose everybody here knows why we're here. You, you probably didn't come here uh, to be told what is Yutes Kislev? You probably knew that it was Yutes Kislev and you were looking for a place to go, and this is the place that you chose to come to, right? Okay. Uh, but nevertheless, it's, sometimes it's uh, a good thing to review the basics. Back to basics. So let's, let's set the tone here. Historically speaking, today is the day that the Balhatanya, or the Alter Rebbe, as we refer to him in Chabad, Rav Shner Zalman of Liadi, was freed from imprisonment. He faced capital charges. The charges were treason, punishable by death. And he was held for 53 days of imprisonment and interrogation in the then capital city of Imperial Russia, the city that we know in Yiddish as Petersburg, some call it St. Petersburg, called it uh, Leningrad for a while. And uh, the significance of the Alter Rebbe's freedom was not just that this crisis of this capital sentence was averted, but much more than that, as we know, when the Alter Rebbe was in prison, he was visited by his Rebbe, the Mizritcher Magid, who, by the way, his yurt site is today. Yeah. The Mizritcher Magid's yurt site is Yurtes Kislev. And uh, his Rebbe's Rebbe, the Balshamtev, both of whom were already in Elamo Emes in the world of truth. But they came and they visited the Alter Rebbe in his cell and they informed him of the behind-the-scenes reason why he was standing trial. We know that nothing happens down here on the physical plane if it doesn't devolve from the spiritual worlds. In this particular case, the Baal Tov and the Magad revealed to the Alter Rebbe even more than that that the, the court case in the, the uh, terrestrial realm was a parallel of a court case going, going on in the Bezdin Shalmaila, in the, in the heavenly court. And the particular charges against the Alter Rebbe were that of proliferating the secrets of the Torah. Now what's wrong with proliferating the secrets of the Torah? Well, that's why they're called secrets. <laughs> it's not a secret. 
if you tell it, let alone proliferate it. It's a good word, right? Proliferate. Proliferating secrets, that's like an oxymoron. So that's what he was being charged with. And uh, he asked the Magid and the Balshemtiv, if I'm acquitted down here, that means that I've been acquitted in the heavenly court as well. So what should I do in that case? Should I stop pushing my luck and basically lay low, stop proliferating the secrets? Or should I continue as, as I had been doing? And they said, no, you should definitely continue as, as you had been doing because that's the whole point. If you're acquitted, uh, that will be a sign that the arguments in the heavenly court in your favor were victorious and it was accepted that the secrets of the Torah, which heretofore had been unnecessary to reveal, are now deemed necessary, meaning to say that our generation would not be able to survive without this knowledge, and that you should take that as a green light. That basically means full speed ahead. And uh, indeed, that's what happened. The Alter Rebbe was acquitted, and after his imprisonment, he took on the teaching of Chassidus with greater, with greater gusto, meaning the teachings became longer and more explanatory, and more of the secrets were revealed than even ever before. So that's, that's the basic reason why we're here. We're here because um, there was a real question of whether or not the Alter Rebbe would be able to continue doing what he felt was necessary for the survival of his generation. If his generation doesn't survive, <laughs> you know how cause and effect works, right? He was seven generations ago, so if his generation didn't make it, we're not here. We don't exist. So our being here today was hanging in the balance at that moment. And that's why it's a big deal. Now let's, let's go a little bit deeper. There's a a story, there are many, many stories related to the Alter Rebbe's imprisonment. But there's one particular episode that I would like to share with you, and I'm sure you're familiar with it. The people watching online, they may not realize what a, what a group of heavy hitters we have over here. This, these are real Chabad ladies. I mean, you guys, there's very little I could tell you that you don't already know which is somewhat of a challenge to me, and I'm taking it as a challenge. Tomorrow night, I'm going to be in Lakewood. So I can get away with relying on some stuff that you guys probably already know, but they'll think it's new, or for them it will be new, and then I can kind of coast a little bit. That's what I'm relying on. But with you guys, I know that you know, you know all this stuff already, so I can't, can't get away with... Just telling you things that you already know. Um, so I'm going to take that as a challenge. I'm going to see if I can. I'm going to see if I can tell you something this Yud Tes Kislev you haven't heard in previous Yud Tes Kislevs. 
I, how about this? When you hear something, this Yotes Kislev, that you didn't hear in a previous Yotes Kislev, will you stop me and let me know and say, hey, that's new to me? Can, you, can we do that? Okay, great. All right. Did you see my talk from London? <laughs> that, I did say that. That's right. In London, I was in London Sunday night, and I said, it's not what you say, it's how you experience. It's the experience, that's right. And hence, by the way, we have a real experience. People, you can't see it online, but there's like food all over the table here, and it's sitting here, it looks like a still life painting. <laughs> We've got to pass it around somehow. There's beautiful food sitting here, and I'm certainly not going to eat it on uh, camera, at least. Um, save me that platter of grapes, so take it to my car before I leave. Um, <laughs> and, and of course, before we started the live stream, there, there was uh, Nigunim, singing Hasidic melodies, which is a very important part of the experience. And uh, we're going to take a break at some point. We'll let you know that the live stream is, is paused and you can continue what you're singing in privacy. Uh, and then I'll come back and we'll, we'll, whatever, we'll, we'll fill it out. We'll see how it goes. But at any rate, yeah, it is about the experience. You're right. It is. So what are the people at home going to do to have an experience? Maybe somebody can come up with an idea and write it in the chat over there. Okay. So here's a story I'm sure you're familiar with. When the Alter Rebbe was in prison, many of the the guards as well as the prison officials and government officials sensed that he was a great man and they would interact with him. They found him intriguing. And in fact, there's even such a story that the Tsar himself came in disguise to interact with the Alta Rebbe. But that's not the story I'm going to tell you. The story is there was a, a minister of some sort, some government official, high-ranking uh, and uh, intelligent. And he was a, uh, a religious person, and he believed in the Bible, and he wanted to use the opportunity <clears throat> that he had to discuss theology with the Alter Rebbe. So he came to the Alter Rebbe, and he said... Um, May I ask the rabbi a question? Al-Tarebbe says, yeah, sure, go ahead. So he said, in uh, the book of Genesis, there's a story of Adam and Eve and the sin of the tree of knowledge. And uh, they eat from the, the fruit of the tree of knowledge. And after they commit this sin, God comes to them and says, where are you? In Hebrew, ayako, literally, where are you? And I've always wondered, why did God have to say, where are you, when certainly God is omniscient and he already knows where Adam is? So the al says he didn't want to startle them. So this non-Jewish minister says, what Rashi says, I know myself. In other words, 
he had not only studied the Bible, but apparently he was aware of, I don't know if he was able to read in Hebrew or it was conveyed to him, but he knew what Rashi says. And in fact, he said, he, he correctly identified it as the commentary of Rashi. So he says, what Rashi says, I know myself. I already know. That's how the Rebbe told it. What Rashi says, I know myself. I already know. I want to hear what the Rebbe says. So the Alter Rebbe said, before I tell you, can I ask you a personal question? So this minister says, yes. The Alter Rebbe says, do you believe that the words of the Torah are true and applicable to every person in every place at every time. So the minister says, yes, I do believe that. And the Alter Rebbe was extremely relieved when he heard that. Now there was a practical reason why he was asking that question. Because, as you're about to see, when I continue the story, the Al-Tareb's answer was in that vein of taking the story and explaining it by making it applicable to each individual in every time at every place, or at every time in every place. But, so that's a practical reason why the Al-Tareb asked him that question, just to make sure he'd even accept that type of an answer. But... There, on another level, there was another reason why the Alter Rebbe asked the question, or at least there, even if that wasn't necessarily the reason why the Alter Rebbe asked the question, but definitely it was cause for the Alter Rebbe to feel a great sense of relief when he heard the, the, the minister's answer. And that was because the Alter Rebbe already understood that the entire situation was an indictment of Torah Sabah Shamtev. He understood that he was going through this entire ordeal because Torah Sabal Shemtev was on trial. The teachings of Yisrael Baal Shemtev. And, and he understood that if the teachings of the Baal Shemtev are vindicated, then he, he will be vindicated. Now one of the primary teachings of the Baal Shemtev that was considered radical in its time is that Torah is eternal and universal and therefore everything in the Torah, every detail of Torah is personally relevant to every individual no matter what situation he or she may find themselves in. So when this non-Jew says yeah, I believe that Torah is applicable in every place at every time to every individual. The Alter Rebbe was quite relieved because that's one of the primary ideas that is on trial right now. So the guy says, yeah, I believe it. All right. So then the Alter Rebbe says, very well. So here's an explanation of the story. Adam had been given one mitzvah. 
and he failed. And at that point, he basically, you know, the expression, you had one job. You had one job. He had one job and he messed it up. That was his life's purpose, and he, he basically dropped the ball on his life's purpose. So God comes to him and says, Ayaka, where are you? Where are you holding? Where are you up to now? Like, look what just happened. This was your life's purpose, and, and you failed. Where are you going to go from here? How are you going to recover from this? Like, what's the path forward? Like, take stock of what you've done, and let's talk about how, you, how you're going to move forward from here. And, and this is the question that, that God Almighty asks every individual at any juncture in his or her life. Ayaka, where are you up to? A person lives such and such number of years, and the Alter Rebbe set a number, which happened to be, happened to be the exact age of this minister who was asking him the question. And Hashem comes to this person and he says to him, you're such and such number of years old. Ayaka, where are you up to? Where, what have you accomplished until now? And where are you going forward from here? That's, that's what Ayaka means. Ayaka means, not physically, where are you located? Tell me your... Tell me your location. Ayaka means, let's stop a second and take stock of where your life is headed. So that, that's, that's the famous Ayaka story. You guys heard that before, right? I assume everyone heard it because I said, stop me if I tell you anything you don't know. I'm doing like the reverse of camp. Because in camp, the campers all stop you if they hear something that they do know. I figured out, you stop me if I tell you something that you don't know. Try it out this summer if you're on staff. So I was thinking about this. And this may or may not be correct. When I tell you things that I made up, I'm very transparent about it. I'll tell you that I made it up. And I'm telling right now, this is made up. But I believe it's the truth. The punchline of the story is a great punchline. Ayaka, where are you? Where are you holding? Where are you up to? It's a great line. But would you say... Do you think that that story and only that story has that takeaway? In other words, the Al-Tarebbe asked this minister, do you believe that everything in Torah is applicable to every individual in every place at every time? It didn't mean only this story. Yeah, this particular story happens to have, meaning the story of Adam and the sin and everything, happens to have the punchline where God says, Ayaka, where are you? Which is a great line. Where are you? Where are you holding in life? But does that same idea apply to other stories in Torah? I mean, I, I think, yeah, I think that's the point, right? The point is not just it applies to other stories, it applies to every story. I think that's the proper understanding of this of this teaching that the Al-Tarebbe shared 
that, in other words, it's not just the story that has the sentence Ayaka in it that's saying, Ayaka, where are you? It's literally every story in Torah is asking you, Ayaka, where are you? And that part I'm pretty sure I'm not making up. I think that's just what it means. So when you do speaking engagements and people say, where are you? Do you when they say, where, I, oh, mean like, what city am I in? Yeah. Yeah, that's how I take it, yeah. <laughs> but I, I want to tell you a different thing. If it's true, this is the leap. I'm making a leap, but I'm telling you it's my leap. If it's true that there is personal relevance in every story in Torah. And I would assume not just the stories, really any, anything that you learn in Torah, whether it's a halacha, or maybe you learn some penimia uh, satayra, and it's teaching about some level, uh, some spiritual level, and it's one of, the, one of the higher worlds. Whatever it is, you're learning something in Torah whether it's pshat, remez, drush, seid. It's all personally relevant. It's all practical. And it's, it's speaking to you. So therefore, and here's the part I'm kind of making up. We could ask... Whenever we learn anything in Torah, we could ask ourselves, we could turn to ourselves and we could say, I can say to myself, or I should say to myself, you're learning this thing. Ayaka, where are you in it? Ayaka, where are you? Meaning, do you think you're just learning a subject that maybe you'll figure out how to apply to your life? Or are you learning about your life? Is this merely talking to you, or is it also talking about you? Is every single thing in Torah you learn a description of your life? That's the part I'm making up, but I think the answer is yes. That every single thing we learn is not just talking to us. Well, that's one level of relevancy. It's talking to us. But then there's a deeper level of relevancy. It's not just talking to us, it's talking about us. This is, on some level, this is a, is a, is a description of me. And I, therefore, I have to ask me, Ayako, where are you? You're learning this, do you find yourself in it? And I think this is one of the big challenges that we have when we're learning Torah, is that we depersonalize it, and um, then consequently... We ask ourselves, like, where's the relevance here? Where, where is this? How is this practical? And the truth is that if we learn properly, it should be apparent to us that um, this is that every that every act of of 
the pursuit of Torah knowledge is really, in its truest sense, an acquisition of self-knowledge. We learn Torah to understand ourselves. And not in a self-consumed sort of way. But in the most humble sense that Hashem made me, Hashem made me for a reason. And if I don't know who I am and why I'm here and my strengths and my weaknesses and what's unique about me and what's unique about my gifts and unique about my challenges, if I don't know that stuff, then how can I be useful to my maker? So it's really important that I should find myself in everything that I learn. Now, you following me? Was this new? So you also made up the same idea? Who said it's not new? So you also made this up once? No, I never said this before. This is new. This is new made-up stuff. No, there's old stuff that I made up a long time ago. I made this up today. I think it is apparent from the Rebbe Yeah, I don't think it's a, it's a bridge too far. I don't think it's a big leap. I think it's pretty logical. But I've never heard those exact words. That's why I'm not... You don't speak to yourself. You only think to yourself. Sometimes I speak to myself. So one of the things that um, I mentioned earlier, if you came in late or if you're tuning in to the live stream late, I said we're in Crown Heights right now. This is, this is the, the core of Lubavitch over here. These are really, this is a serious crowd. And uh, so I'm, I'm going to speak on that level. And if you're watching online and this is like, whoa, this is a little too intense for me, then I apologize. And I think there are probably a dozen Yudtes Kislev Fabrengens in English live tonight. And probably if you're online, you're bouncing between them right now anyway. So, <laughs> okay. But this is the real, this is like hardcore Lubavitch over here. So I'm going to go for like the, can I do that? Like the real intense stuff? Okay. Yeah, I should go for it? Okay. Yeah. Okay, the real stuff. All right. So, one of the things that Siddham always end up talking about, maybe even we don't just end up talking about maybe maybe sometimes we even start off talking about it, we talk a lot about the Rebbe. And um, I think it would be helpful to discuss that a little bit, why we speak so much about the Rebbe. And the answer, I'll give you, I'll give you the punchline before I even start, is that like anything we learn in Torah, it's an act of self-discovery. It's access to knowledge about myself. 
And one of the most powerful ways to gain knowledge of our true selves is through hiskashris to a tzaddik. In chapter 2 of Tanya, he describes this as a solution to a problem. He says that all the souls are coming from a lofty source, which he refers to as, as chokhmi, Allah. And then he starts talking about different souls, high souls, low souls. Hold on a second, you just said they all come from the same source. How, then how do we have high ones and low ones? And uh, it's explained that, yes, all, all souls originate in the same source, but they have to come down. And as they come down, some of them are affected by their descent, and uh, they, they stop off, so to speak. They take the, the local train instead of the express, and they get a little bit of uh, bria on them, or a little yitzira, or a little asiya. And, and it's, it's more complex, I'm oversimplifying, because it's not just the, the eilamais, then there's levels within the eilamais. Huh? Yeah. You could take a piece of kugel, but one's a corner piece and it's crispy, and one's a middle piece. Ah, piece. okay. okay They're yeah. all the same. Right, same batch. Even when you make challah, right? That's a good marshal. You take the different pieces, you make a big bulkala, you get a small one, one gets a little burnt, one's really perfect, one's whatever. It's a good marshal. Now, the marshal that he uses in, in chat, I'll, I'll stick with Alfred Abbas Marshall because he gives us a marshal. If he wouldn't give me a marshal, I would also make up a marshal. But he gives me a marshal, he says it's a body. And in a body of one organism, you have different limbs. And even if you have one cell, which is a brain cell, another cell, which is a toenail cell, and on a superficial level, they have very different functions and very different levels of value. Nevertheless, he doesn't use the word DNA, but he says etzim, the same essence, which I guess physically the parallel would be that you, you take a cell from the brain or a cell from the toenail and you'll find the same, the same DNA from one, one person. So he says that the, the different levels are just articulations that are circumstantial to embodiment, but in an original source, we're all one. Okay, but then, but here's the thing, okay, that's in my source, but I'm down here now. <laughs> that's all well and good in my source, like, but how long... Is it going to be before I go back to my source? Hopefully a, a while. I don't want to. <laughs> but even, right? Yeah. Even like source-wise, just like the toenail can carry out the job of the heart, how is there one toenail for so many different souls? Yeah, so that's one thing that this explains, that the, even though there are different levels, but each one is indispensable, there's an interdependence between them, and they all rely on each other for their different division of labors. Yes, that's, that's also something that this explains. But... What about this particular issue of how do I reconnect to my original pristine origin? You're telling me, you, the Altarab is making a, a claim that every single Jew comes from the same lofty source. Okay, but if I lose touch with that in my embodiment, then what difference does it make to me? So he answers that question in chapter 2, at the end of chapter 2, and he says, well, that's what a tzaddik is for. Our sages tell us that the way to be dovuk to the Shechina is to be dovuk to Talmid Chachomim, 
And when you connect to the Chacham, you are connecting to yourself. You're connecting back to your true self. In other words, when you find a tzaddik who in his embodiment is no worse for the wear, in his embodiment he's still the same as all the souls were up in their highest origin, and then you have a relationship with that tzaddik, what you're really doing is connecting back to your source, to your essence. In other words, this is not hero worship. You're not putting someone on a pedestal and saying, look how great the tzaddik is. No, it's, oh, I just remembered how great I really am. And therefore, the relationship with the tzaddik is one that obligates us. Because when you realize how great you are, then you understand how much you have to achieve. So the relationship with the tzaddik is one that puts you squarely in, in, in the place to do, to do your shlichus, to do your mission. With all the potential and all the, the, the powers that, that your soul really has. Okay, so that, that's chapter two of Tanya. But I want to talk about today's chitas. By the way, Yotas Kislev is a time of hachlotas, to make good resolutions. So if you're looking for a good resolution to make, we could always up our game in the daily study of chitas, the, uh, the enactment of the, the Friedrich Rebbe to study every day, the Chumash Tilam Tanya. And uh, if you're looking for some suggestions how to up your game, I could, I could tell you some ideas. But... Uh, learning with more understanding, learning, uh, finishing before shkia, or for some of us, just getting it done every day, or uh, making sure to make it up when you don't make it, when you don't finish it every day, whatever, you talk to your mashpia and you figure out which is the appropriate resolution. At any rate, today's chitas, today's daily tanya. Today, we studied the the Approbations. We didn't even get to the title page yet. We didn't even get to the title page. We studied the approbations. So there are three approbations, haskamas, that we learn. One is from Reb Zushya, who was one of the colleagues of the Alter Rebbe, who was one of the, the disciples of the Magid. The other is from Reb Yehuda Leibakoyin, who was also one of the Tamidia Magid. And then there's an approbation that's written by the three sons of the Alter Rebbe. The Mitle Rebbe, Reb Doiv Ber, who eventually became the successor of the, of the Alter Rebbe, Reb Chaim Avram, and Reb Moshe, the three sons of the Alter Rebbe. And in, in the approbation they explain they, that they added... Uh, the Igeras HaKodesh and Kuntras to the Tanya, and they also mention the, the prohibition against Hasagas um, Gvul, against printing your own Tanya, not to damage the, the financial investment of those who backed the publication of Tanya. And then they sign off, they each sign their own name, and what's very interesting, did you notice this? 
each of them writes their name, and they each have different names, obviously. Doivber and Chaim Avram and Moshe. But they all have the same father's name, meaning they're all the sons of the Alter Rebbe. And yet, if you notice, every one of them writes different titles for the Alter Rebbe. They write the same name, Schneer Zalman. The Alter Rebbe's name was Schneer Zalman. So they all write, whether it's uh, Daiber or Chaim Avram or Meisha, they write Ben, the son of Schneer Zalman, but they give different titles. Each of them gives the Alter Rebbe different titles, which is kind of interesting. Like, why wasn't there a consistent format? Did you notice that? Hmm? You noticed it? Uh-huh. So, the Rebbe actually explains why that is. The Rebbe says that each of them was writing a description of the Alter Rebbe that they related to, that was sort of an indication of who they were. So, for instance, that the, the, the Mitle Rebbe, who, who was a future Rebbe, so he refers to the Alter Rebbe as Kodesh, as holy. And uh, Chaim Avram refers to the, to, to the Alter Rebbe as a Paisik as a halachic ruler. And uh, Reb Meisha refers to the Alter Rebbe's tzidkus, to his righteousness. They're all referring to qualities that the Alter Rebbe possessed that they themselves had. Now I want to pause for a second. There's a story that the Rebbe himself told after Yud Shvat, after the passing of his Rebbe, the Friedrich Rebbe. And it's a story that took place after the passing of the Friedrich Rebbe's Rebbe, the Friedrich Rebbe's father, the, the Rebbe Rashab. That at the Shiva of the Rebbe Rashab, there was a Chassid who was extolling the greatness of the Rebbe Rashab. And the Rebbe Rashab's son, the Friedrich Rebbe, stopped this chassid and said, enough, you're not talking about my father, the Rebbe, you're talking about yourself. Meaning, you're just describing you. You're not talking about the Rebbe, you're talking about you. And the Rebbe told this story. You understand? The Rebbe, after the passing of the Friedrich Rebbe, told a story that the Friedrich Rebbe said after the passing of his father, the Rebbe Rashab. And the Rebbe told the story himself and said that people try to describe the Rebbe. And what do they end up doing? Basically just whatever it is that they appreciate, so that's the thing that they focus on. But that's not the essence of the Rebbe. So, (laughs) were the Alter Rebbe's sons falling into the same trap by describing specific qualities of their father, their Rebbe, the Alter Rebbe? And if so, 
is it now like recorded for all time in Tanya that they describe the Rebbe that way? Or is there something good about what they did and we, we somehow have to reconcile that with the other story about the Rebbe saying, you're not talking about the Rebbe, you're talking about yourself. In other words, is there a time when you're not talking about the Rebbe, you're talking about yourself as a deficiency, and is there a time when you're talking about the Rebbe, oh no, you're actually talking about yourself, is, is, is actually a good thing. <laughs> and if you read the Rebbe's note there, in the approbations, the, it, it seems that the Rebbe is saying it was, it was a positive thing, that the sons of the Alter Rebbe all spoke that way. That it was a, it was a, a good thing. So, there's a... You hear the question, yeah? Is that the rule? Every time you talk about the rabbi, you're always describing yourself. Or is that just like actually accurately describe I love your question. Is there any way to avoid this? Is there ever a way to speak about the rabbi and not speak about ourselves? No, because when you speak about any person, you speak about yourself. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's where I was thinking. It's not you, it's me. Right. <laughs> Right. When, when you said that, um, that they would, like, there are basically never people talking about the greatness of the rabbi because they're just talking about themselves. The rabbi talking about other people and seeing the good in, in every year is like talking about himself and about the rabbi's greatness. So it's almost, it's almost like it can't be any other way. Atmos is never not subjective. What? Atmos, describing Atmos. Atmos is never not subjective. Hold on a second. It's a lot of no, negatives. No, I, got, but I think it's a triple negative. And it goes back to a... You know, there was once a, an uh, English professor, and he was explaining that in English, if you have a double negative, it's a positive. Right. Like, it's not never. Oh, so then it's always, right. He says, but, the professor said to his class, he said, but you never find in English that there's a double positive that makes a negative. And the student cries out from the back, yeah, right. (laughs) Yeah, right, double positive makes a negative. Okay, so what when you speak about optimus is never not subjective? Can you be, can you be objective and speak about optimus? Can you be objective and speak about optimus? Optimus is the essence of all reality. Can you objectively speak about the essence of all reality? No. Because to speak of it objectively, truly objectively, is to be it. No, I don't. Th- I'm not trying to get around it. I don't think it ca- I can get around it. I think that you know, there's an expression. Sometimes, well, usually the context this is used is to describe 
negative behaviors, negative judgments that we make of other people. Uh, but the expression is, if you if you spot it, you've got it. Takes one to know one. And Chassidus also says that, right? That if you see a defect in somebody else, it's yours. Could that work in the positive? If, if you spot it, you've got it. Yeah, all the time. So, somebody recognizes a quality. And he describes that quality as existing in somebody else. We would say he probably the person who's describing it probably has this quality as well. On some level. On some level. Okay. And I'm okay with you mitigating it and taking it down a notch. On some level. What if we're talking about this somebody else is a somebody else who we describe as a neshama clawless. I told you this is like the hardcore group over here. I'm not going to speak like this in Lakewood tomorrow night. What's a neshama clawless? It's the opposite of a neshama protis. <laughs> it's not a specific soul, it's a general soul. It's a figure that's connected to every single other Jew. Or like uh, Rashi says, that Moshe is Yisrael and Yisrael is Moshe, meaning Moshe Rabbeinu is the Jewish people and the Jewish people are Moshe Rabbeinu ki hanasi hu hakol, because the leader is everything, and everything, conversely, is the leader. In other words, this isn't just the greatest guy that we've got, and therefore we made him the head. No, actually, the head, like we were speaking about earlier, chapter 2 of Tanya, the biological or the anthropomorphic imagery, the, the metaphor of the, of the body, the head, or the brain, runs the entire body, and the entire body is run by the brain. And the brain feels everything that's going on in every part of the body. Hence, if you have an ingrown toenail, it could keep you up all night. Why? It's just a little toenail. Just go to sleep. Don't worry about it. And yet, your consciousness is flooded with the awareness of this, of this pain that's going on in the most extraneous part of your body. That's the nature of a brain. So what if you have a person who is a brain? A Rebbe, Rosh Tevis, Rosh B'nei Yisrael, Resh Beis Yod, or Neshama Klolis, or Hanasi Hu Akol, whatever formulation you want to use to describe it with words. The point is, we're saying, psychologically speaking, that if you see a quality in somebody else, you probably have that quality on some level. How much more so if we're describing a relationship with a person who is actually a higher level embodiment of our very own selves? So therefore, if we perceive a quality in this figure, doesn't it stand to reason that 
we have that quality. And in fact, we got that quality from, <laughs> from that neshama klolis. And we're recognizing in the neshama klolis those qualities that are particularly revealed in us. So the Alter Rebbe's sons saw different qualities in their father because those were the qualities that their father was expressing through them. There's a Mikhtov Klali. The Rebbe used to write Mikhtovim Klalium. Those are general letters that are written to all of the Jewish people. Several times a year, the Rebbe would write such a letter, usually in connection with holidays and other important dates. So there's a Mikhtav Klali of Yud Aleph Nissen, Tavshin Chavav, the spring of 66. And uh, the Yudolf Nissen is obviously the Rebbe's birthday, but the Yudolf Nissen letter was always in conjunction with um, Pesach, just a few days before Pesach. And I won't tell you the whole body of the letter, but it's an extended explanation of the Korban Pesach as a metaphor for different aspects of life. That the, the Torah tells us to roast a sheep, a lamb, uh, with its head and its innards and its feet. And so the Rebbe goes through what, is, what does each of these things symbolize. And they basically symbolize different aspects of, of the human experience. And that making them into a sacrifice for Hashem that we burn over fire is like taking all of those facets of our humanity and dedicating them to Hashem and, 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 and setting them aflame with a passion for, for service of Hashem. I mean, that's an oversimplification, but that's the gist of it. And at the end of the letter, the Rebbe mentions that it's the, the yard site of the Tzemach Tzedek. The Tzemach Tzedek was the grandson of the Alter Rebbe. And that year, Tavshin Chavav was actually the 100th yard site of the Tzemach Tzedek. So, you know the Tzemach Tzedek's yard site? His birthday is Er Rosh Hashanah, but Yud Gimel Nissen. Yud Gimel Nissen, yeah. So, Yud Gimel Nissen. So, the Rebbe says that the Tzemach Tzedek was an embodiment of all those aspects that are represented metaphorically by the head, the innards, and the feet. And he represented the ultimate perfection of those aspects of humanity, and he was an embodiment of human perfection. And then the Rebbe proceeds to describe the Tzemach Tzedek with a, a list of titles. A very interesting list of titles. He says... He was the tzaddik, the gon, the choiker, mekubal, poisik, umanhig. Six terms in a row. Like, 
These are all titles of the Tzemech Tzadik. In other words, the Rebbe is bringing out how well-rounded and versatile the Tzemech Tzadik was, a, a veritable Renaissance man. Lahavdil. Uh, the Tzadik means a righteous person, a holy person, but as you know, in Chassidus it means much more than that. We're talking about somebody who has completely transformed any selfish drive into absolute selflessness. You know, like Tanya explains what a tzaddik is. You talk about a completely holy person who has no animalistic nature and is only driven by pure altruism. That's the tzaddik. The gon means the genius. And the tzemach tzaddik was a genius. In Nigla and in Nister. And he was a chayker. What's a chayker? Chayker is Moloshin Chakira. You know what Chakira is? Sometimes we translate it as Jewish philosophy. Like uh, the Rambam wrote Chakira. He wrote hal- mostly halacha, but uh, the Mishnah Torah is halacha. But uh, Chakira, the Rambam also wrote Chakira. Meira HaNavuchim is Chakira. Or the Kuzari is Chakira. And the Tzemach Tzedek wrote Chakira, Jewish philosophy. There's a sefer called uh, Derech Amuna, which is the Tzemach Tzedek's Chakira. And he was a Makubal. He didn't just write philosophy, he also wrote Kabbalah. The Tzemach Tzedek was a Makubal. And he wrote Biurim and Zayar. This is in addition to, to teaching Chassidus, but he also taught straight, raw Kabbalah. And the Paisik, he was a Paisik. What's a Paisik? means somebody who makes halachic rulings. In fact, the name Tzemach Tzedek comes from a name of his Sfarim that are halachic rulings. Tzemach Tzedek is, uh, Tzemach is the same gematria as Menachem. And Tzedek is the same gematria as Mendel. Tzemach Tzedek's name was Menachem Mendel. But Tzemach Tzedek is the name of uh, Sfarim of, of Piskei Dinim, halachic rulings. He was a Paisik. And a Manhig, what's a Manhig? A Manhig means a, a leader, an organizer. Tzemach Tzedek dealt with mundane things like helping Jews find a livelihood or, or getting Jews settled into uh, farming. That was one of his big things. That's what a manhig does. That's what a leader does. He also deals with practical stuff. So the Tzemach Tzedek had all these bases covered. He was the Tzedek and the Gon and the Choyker and the Makubal and the, the Paisik and the manhig. I think those are also meant to be, um, each one of those is supposed to like, bring out a certain paradox. That's how I took it when I read it. Because the tzaddik and the gon, for instance. So the tzaddik's very holy, but it doesn't mean he's a Talmud Chacham. You know, they're like Lamed Vovniks, the tzaddikim nistarim. So they're very pure, very holy. It doesn't mean that they, they could be a Rosh Hashiva. And then vice versa. You can have people who are very, very, uh, who are geniuses. It doesn't mean that they excel in tzidkus, in, 
midos, and the purity of their character. So you got the tzaddik and the gon, like the both extremes. And then the chayker and the makubal. Because you could be into chakira, very into like intellectual, rational explanations, and then you sort of don't like the esoteric, the, the kabbalistic, the mystical. Or vice versa, you could be very into Kabbalah and you like all the, the spiritual talk and then the Chakira is, uh, I don't like, too rationalistic for me. But he had both. And then you have the Paisik and you have the Manhig. You know, the Paisik is the... Milmaila Lamate is telling you, here's what Taita says, this is the, the, the authoritative ruling. A Manhig is more of a, like, Lahavdal CEO. He's practically dealing with a lot of people and moving parts and facts on the ground. So he had it all. He had all these qualities. So at any rate, I'm telling about the Mikhtav Klali from Yud Aleph Nisan Tavshin Chavav. The Rebbe describes the Tzemach Tzedek. He says he was the embodiment of this perfection. He had all of the milas represented metaphorically by the head and the innards and the feet. And he was indeed, he was the, let's see if we can do it, the Tzadik, the Gon, the Tchoyker, Mekubal, Poisik, And then the next thing that Rebbe says is, and who, who among us could aspire to such a level? Which is funny because when I read those qualities, that I was not thinking to myself, oh, I wonder if I could ascribe, aspire to... To that, I didn't, I didn't even think that. So why is the Rebbe even mentioning this? Like the Rebbe is saying, don't get any big ideas. Rebbe, I didn't. <laughs> like, I wasn't even thinking that. I was impressed with the Tzemach Tzedek. I read it, and I was like, wow. Yeah, that's true. The Tzemach Tzedek is really amazing. So the Rebbe is telling me, yeah, but who among us could be like that? I wasn't even thinking. That wasn't even a thought that I was having. <laughs> And then, but you see this, you see where the Rebbe is going here. He's like, and, you know, we, we couldn't be like that. However, and then where does the Rebbe go? Straight to, yeah, but we really could. And the Rebbe says, a beautiful, beautiful metaphor. It's really, it's poetic. And you can try to envision it. It's just really beautiful. The Rebbe says that even the tiniest droplet of water can reflect the entire sun. Provided, and he gives two conditions, that droplet of water is clean and it's facing the sun. So too, each of us can reflect the perfection of the Tzemach Tzedek. Such a beautiful image. The tiny droplet of water. Think about something so insignificant. A drop of water. And yet, the drop of water can reflect the entire sun. Provided that what? It's clean. And it's facing the sun. It does give off light. It reflects light. But it, it doesn't have a it's not light. It's not, light. it's not the source of light, but it's reflective light. Like the moon is reflective light. 
and you can see the sun in the droplet. In other words, if I meet the droplet, I could figure out some things about the sun, even if I never directly saw the sun. In other words, I'll spell it out and say it explicitly, if I meet a chassid, I can learn about the Rebbe. So we, it's dark out already, but tomorrow we're going to go out and take a field trip. And we're going to get a droplet of water. We're going to put it under the sun. And you're going to see. Oh, this is reflecting a little bit. Yeah. Fine. So, so you can see. You can't figure out how it's working. You can't figure out what's in there. You can't see it. Yeah, well, looking right at the sun also wouldn't help me figure out how the sun works. That's not the point. The point is that the same qualities that you could perceive in the sun can be perceived by something far smaller than the sun and that by association, okay, I could know the, I could know the sun by knowing the drop of water. I can know the Rebbe by knowing myself by realizing what qualities of the Rebbe appeal to me, what qualities of the Rebbe I relate to, that's a form of his kashras, and vice versa. His kashras, connection to the tzaddik, is an act of facing those beautiful qualities that the Rebbe put in me as a neshama klolis, as a neshama that's connected to every neshama, and when I embrace those qualities and I admit the strengths that I have and the talents that I have, it's a form of connecting to the tzaddik. But what, I want to focus on the details of the mushal. What does it mean that provided that the droplet of water is clean? What does it mean not to be clean? I know what the mushal means. I know what the metaphor is. It would be dirty. But I'm saying in the nimshal, like in real life, what does it mean to not be a clean droplet of water? Right, so he's thinking about inappropriate things and he's poisoning himself with all types of yucky stuff. Yeah, I thought about that also, but then I, I rejected that and I thought it means something else. What? Not being receptive, but what is it that blocks me off from being receptive? What is it that makes me not hear what the Rebbe is telling me about me? Can I tell you a story, quick story? So, Yud Kislev is the Yemagula of the Mitla Rebbe. Yud Tess is the, the Alter Rebbe's Yemagula. And then Yud Kislev is his son, the Mitla Rebbe's redemption. So, Toshin Yud Base, Yud Kislev was on a Shabbos, like it was this year. So, you're talking about 70 years ago? Um, and no, no, Yud Kislev, I'm sorry, Yud Kislev was on Matzah Shabbos and, and Yemrishin on Sunday. Tess Kislev was Shabbos. 
just like this year. Yeah, the Kvias in Tavshin Yud Beis, and that, we're talking about the first Yud Kislev after Kabbalah and Nesias. The Rebbe accepted leadership Yud Shvat Tavshin Yud Aleph. So we're talking about the first Yud Kislev after that. Tes Kislev, the Mitlet Rebbe's birthday in Yorzeit was on Shabbos, and the Yemagula Yud Kislev was on Matzah Shabbos Yim Rishin, Sunday. So after Shabbos, the Rebbe came out for Kiddush Levana. Generally, we don't make Kiddush Levana until seven days into the month, so this is already the tenth day of the month. It's time for Kiddush Levana. So the Rebbe came out. It's a good thing to make Kiddush Levana Matzah Shabbos, because you're wearing Shabbos clothing. Um, so the Rebbe came out to make Kiddush Levana, and it was cloudy. And the Rebbe said, you know, one time it happened to the Rebbe to Shab, that he came out to make Kiddush Levana and it was cloudy. And the Rebbe to Shab said, one time it happened to the Meir Mepremishlan, that he came out to make Kiddush Levana and it was cloudy. And the Rebbe to Shab is now telling the story, the Rebbe is telling a story about the Rebbe to Shab telling a story about Reb Meir Mepremeshlan. So Reb Meir Mepremeshlan said, how did they make Kiddush Levana in the Midbar, in the wilderness, for 40 years? When they had Anon Yaakov, they had clouds of glory. So seemingly, it was always overcast. So how did they ever make Kiddush Levana? This is what Reb Meir Mepremeshlan says. So Reb Meir says this, and he says, Mistama, probably what happened, and he goes, he pulls out a tichel, a handkerchief. The mayor says, Meshur Rabbeinu did like this, and he acted out. The mayor Mepremeshlan acts out what Meshur Rabbeinu did. And as the Rebbe Rishab is telling the story of Meir Mepremeshlan describing what Meshur Rabbeinu did, the Rebbe Rishab is also doing the motion. And a patch of clouds sort of cleared away and they could see the moon they made Kiddush Levana. In both stories. <laughs> so in the story that Meir Mepremashlan is telling and he's acting it out, what Meishu Rabbeinu did and he clears the clouds and the Rebbe Rashab is telling the story acting out what Meir Mepremashlan is acting out being Meishu Rabbeinu and they both cleared the clouds. Okay. When the Rebbe told the story the Rebbe did not do the motion. Now, I was saying before, everything in Torah, you got to relate to it. You got to see. I believe Rabbi Glass from Montreal was there, and he did. And the Rebbe told him, I know what you did, and I'm not happy. I'll tell you, the Rebbe went to his mother, went to Rebbe Tzinchana, and he made Havdalah. What happened? The Rebbe left. I'll tell you that what happened. Give me a second. Relate to this for a second. It's not a story about the Rebbe. I mean, it is, but it's a story about you. If you take this story personally, I cannot imagine the incredible tzimtzum, the incredible self-restraint that it took the Rebbe not to act out that motion. I mean, that's how you tell the story. How do you tell the story without doing it? That's how it 
You go like this. And the Rebbe did not act out the motion. Think about the self-restraint that that probably took. But I'll continue the story. The Rebbe then said, maybe there's someone here who knows how to do that. You can look up the Hanukkah. It's uh, Yud, uh, Yud Kislev Tafshin Yud Beis. Maybe there's somebody here who knows how to do that. There were Chassidim around. So one of the Chassidim said to the Rebbe, the Rebbe can do it. And the Rebbe said, it's enough that I told the story. And then the Rebbe said, Ich kum tzirik, I'm going to come back. And he went to the Rebbe Tzinchani and he made Havdalah. That's the story. Oh, after the Rebbe came back, it was a little bit clear and the Rebbe made Kiddush Levada. That's, that's the story. That's what happened. When I was recently, I was reading that story again because it was the same Kavias, like I said, of this year. I was thinking about just recently, somebody told me he was at um, Purim. I think it was also Tavshin Chavav. Same year as that Michtof Klali, interesting. Um, at, the, at, at the Purim Fabrengen, the Rebbe said the words, Kol Anyone who hand, sticks out their hand, we give to them. It's a halacha when it comes to Purim, that anyone who asks for a handout, you have to give it to them. You, have to be, you can't refuse anyone on, on Purim. So somebody was telling me he was there, just recently. He was telling me he was there. He said, I didn't know what the Rebbe was hinting to. But within a half a second, hundreds of guys were literally flying over my head, leaping over my head, tackling each other, holding out their cup to the Rebbe. Like, the Rebbe just said, call up patient, yadi nice and It's like, it's like, a, it's a halacha about Purim. How did everyone figure out, like this, that the Rebbe was saying, anyone's going to ask for a lechaim, I'm going to give them a lechaim. Immediately, everyone, they were tackling, they were smushing, they were crushing to the point that even after the Rebbe left the Fabrengen, they mobbed the Rebbe's room. And when the Rebbe came out, they were mobbing the steps. When the Rebbe got in his car, they crushed the car. They broke the car. The car didn't drive. They broke the shocks. People were mobbing the car. Everyone called a And they, 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 they crushed the Rebbe's they, they, Rebbe Krinsky's car did not drive, and they had to get another car. And then when the Rebbe got home, they were mobbing the Rebbe's house. And then the next day, Shushan Purim, people came to the Rebbe again. It took a long time to taper off. Finally, the Rebbe stopped giving, and uh, the Rebbe told people different answers. But the Rebbe said, Kola Peshit Yadeh, and immediately everyone, you did not have to spell it out for Chassidim, they understood that the Rebbe is about to give anyone who wants L'chaim, the Rebbe is giving L'chaim with all the brachas that that entails. Everyone figured it out. They were geniuses. 
I'm asking an innocent question. I wasn't there tough in your base, 1952. It was probably December of 51. It wasn't yet 52, but... The Rebbe looks around and says, after just telling a story about making a motion, where the person in the story made the motion that the person in the story made, about a person in the story making a motion, and then the Rebbe doesn't, specifically doesn't make that motion, and the Rebbe looks around and says, I wonder if anyone here knows how to do that. And the smartest answer that anyone could come up with is, uh, the Rebbe knows how to do that. If the Rebbe wanted to do that, the Rebbe would have done that. In fact, it was probably incredibly difficult not to do that. I'm just saying, if call a patient Yaday, everyone knows how to take a hint, and they mob, and they crush, and they tackle, and they leap, and they won't let the Rebbe alone until they get what the Rebbe was hinting he'll give, why is it so hard to take the hint when the Rebbe is suggesting that this that you think is a miracle of the Rebbe Rashab maybe is accessible to every Jew today. Or at least if the Rebbe tells you it's accessible to do it, then, then at the very least. But no, nobody thinks to do it. Yeah, I know. I mean, my first My point is that the Rebbe said something earlier that year at Kabbalah Senesius, the very first official Fabrengen of the Nesius, and nobody believed him. And when the Rebbe said it again 40 years later, on Chov Ches Nisim Tavshinun Aleph, people still refused to believe him. What? That he's empowering you, and not just empowering you, because that would imply you didn't have the power before. He's revealing to you that you have the power as an individual to be the one to bring Mashiach. He said it clear, the first Fabrengen, you guys are going to do this. And not just collectively, every individual. Bishvili nivraha'ilam. Every individual has to see it. Bishvili nivraha'ilam. That the concealment of godliness in the world is my job to fix. And the Rebbe is speaking about every individual, even including women, which you don't understand how strange that sounds to the frum ear even now, how much more so in the 50s, when the Rebbe was including women also being indispensable to this task, and saying, you're going to do it. And that the whole Rebbe-Chosid relationship in Dereshvi is a different type of a relationship. It's not watch the Rebbe be great, it's be me. Be me. Shlichus. Shlich shal adam kameisei mamash. Be me. So you want to see the Rebbe or you want to be the Rebbe? The Rebbe is saying, be me. Be an extension of me. You know, the Rebbe said, Chazal tell us, in same kanal you're not allowed to rely on miracles. But really what that means is, miracles are a relative term. Everything's relative. What's a miracle? I mean... Depends who you're talking about. 
A Jew, his entire Metzius is already supernatural. So relative to the Jew, that which the world calls miraculous, for the Jew it's not miraculous, and therefore he could be saimich, he could rely on it. The Rebbe said this. Now, I don't know if anyone took it seriously or not, but if I were to tell you that the Rebbe said that same vort, but he said it about a Rebbe, everyone would have no problem with it. I mean, not only just believing that the Rebbe said it, but like internalizing it. You go repeat it. You'd rely on it. If I were to, the Rebbe once said, although Chazal say, in Semchan Alanais, you're not allowed to rely on a miracle, where is that applying to someone who's not miraculous? A Rebbe is a miracle worker, so for a Rebbe, miracles are natural. And you'd be like, oh yeah, taka, yeah, yeah. But that's not what the Rebbe said. The Rebbe said, a Yid is, is a miracle worker. A Yid is miraculous. A Yid is above nature. And therefore, for a Yid to do a miracle isn't a miracle, it's, it's, his, it's his nature. That's what the Rebbe actually said. So the Rebbe didn't say it about himself. The Rebbe said it about you. So who among us can aspire to the level of the Tzemach Tzedek? Right? But this is also what the, the Rebbe said in the first Fabreng in Yud Shvat. The Rebbe brought the Tanah Yahu. You know the famous words of Tana de Viliohu, that every person should say, man, woman, and child, should say, when will my deeds reach the level of Avaisai, the patriarchs, of Rom, Yitzchuk, Viyankiv? You think that's... You think it's just poetry? Or is it literal? This is, this is Yud Shvat, Tavshin Yud Aleph, the Rebbe said. Every, and it's, it's not from the Rebbe, the Rebbe's quoting Tana de Vilio, which is safer from an Amaira. It's 1,500 years old, or more. That you're supposed to say, when am I going to reach the level of, of Rom Yitzchak Viyankiv? So, it, it seems that the Rebbe has a higher opinion of us than we have of ourselves. And we got to ask ourselves the question, who do we think is probably right? The Rebbe seems to think that we're capable of more than what we think we're capable of. Who do we think is probably right? So what I'm saying is that his kashras is not identifying somebody that you look up to and you admire and you say, wow, look at that person's qualities. His kashras is when you identify the person who is the truest, most faithful representation of your real self. And when you find this person and you, you unite with this person, which is called Yechidus, Yechidus is when you unite with a Rebbe. Today we have Yechidus by going to the oil. 
So, very good. Thank you. That's a meme. Write that down. Post that. I've heard of somewhere. But in case nobody heard, we don't go to the aisle to see, we go to the aisle to be. Is that what you said? Well, I've said that before, but we're, we're upping. Yeah, I, I, yeah I, I always tell people when you go to the aisle, you're not going there to see, you're going to be seen. But now I'm going to go even a higher level. You don't go there to see, you go there to be. You go there to be. Yourself. To be who? Yourself. Yeah. And, it, and if it's being yourself, then, then we don't even have to finish that sentence. To be. To be what? To really be. To really be. You know, an act is an act. But being is, it's, it's not an act. Are you saying is really just getting in touch with your true self? Yes. So, I had a, a mashpia who... He, when he was a bar mitzvah bacher, he had yechidus with the rebbe. This is in the good old, good old days. Every little bar mitzvah boy had yechidus. And he asked his teacher, who was Rebbe Yael, all of a shalom, can you imagine that? A little bar mitzvah boy not only having yechidus, but his chassidus teacher is Yael Khan. Okay, you're talking about a, another era. But this is a teacher of mine. told me this story. So he was going in for Yechidus, and he asked Rabbi Yoel, when I go into the Rebbe, how should I conduct myself? So Yoel told him, eh, forget about it, I'll take your spot. <laughs> so the kid's like, whoa, 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 no, I'm not trying to give up my spot here. I'm asking a question. When I go into the Rebbe, how do I conduct myself? So Yale told him again, yeah, I told you, I'll take your spot. The kid's like, please, I'm not trying, I do not want to lose my spot. I'm just asking, I want to know, when I go into the Rebbe, how do I conduct myself? He says, and I'm telling you, I'm taking your spot. So finally the kid says, what am I saying wrong? I know I'm saying something wrong here, what am I saying wrong? So Yale says to him, Gan Salem Haza is Alma de Shikru. That sentence says, Three languages in it, by the way. <laughs> Yiddish, Hebrew, Aramaic. Gantz is Yiddish. Elam Hazez, Lashon HaKodesh. Alma de Shikra is Aramaic. So, simply translated, it means this whole world is a false world. But it means much more than that. And in this context, it means even more than what it normally means. Because normally when we say that Elam Hazez, Alma de Shikra, what we mean is it's a false world because things are not as they seem. We see the, the Bria instead of the Baira. We see creation instead of creator. That's how we normally mean it in Chassidus. But in this context, apparently, it's obvious, or it's, uh, it's evident, that Yoel meant something even deeper than that. Not only is the world, the, the physical world, a false world because things are not as they seem to be. But on an even deeper level, this is profound, the physical world is a false world because we are not as we seem to be, even to ourselves. In other words, the condition of embodiment makes self-deception almost the default. Like we lose touch with who we really are. And we can buy into an act and not only fool everyone else, we can even believe it and fool ourselves. 
so that we don't even know who we are. Yale didn't say all these words, but from context it's apparent, and I've thought about this story many, many times. So he tells the, the Bar Mitzvah Bacher, this whole world's a false world, meaning, and he didn't spell out these words, but it's evident from his next sentence that this is what he meant. Your whole life is an act. And he wasn't condemning him, he wasn't calling him out, he was saying, this is the human condition, that we're divorced from our true selves. And he says, in this entire world of falsehood, there's one Dalit Amish Shel Emes, which literally means one four-cubit area of truth. But what he meant is, the Rebbe's, the Rebbe's Dalit Amish, being in proximity to the Rebbe. It's called Dalit Amish Shel Emes, so that's how Rebbe called it. And in the place of Emes, meaning the place where you are the true you, you're asking me how you should behave? In that case, it's what I told you, I'll go in instead of you. You see what he's saying? You finally have an opportunity to be yourself, and now you're asking me how to act like that? Let's cut out the middleman. I'll just go in. <laughs> so we, we, we connect to the tzaddik to be reminded of who we really are. Or like Freddie Hager, Ephraim uh, Hager, Oliver Shalom from uh, London. He, is, he had Yechidus, I think he was 23 years old. And he was not a Lubavitcher at all at that time. And he fell into a crowd in, in London who, of Chassidim. And, and so they, they said, we're going to New York. They brought him with, and they, they brought him into Yechidus. So not only he'd never met the Rebbe before, but he, he didn't really understand the whole Rebbe concept except for what the Chassidim had told him. So uh, he has his Yechidus with the Rebbe. And I won't tell you the whole story, I'll just tell you the punchline. When he came out, to me the punchline is, is the whole story. He came out and he said that I was improperly prepared for the meeting with the Rebbe. I went in thinking that I was going to meet a great man, and I left realizing that I had met my true self. Now that's pretty good that after one Yechidus, he got it. He got it. That's, he got it right. That's exactly what Yechidus is. He got it after one Yechidus. That's pretty fast. He realized what it's all about. You're not going there to meet a great man. What kind of... It sounds, it sounds coarse. It's like hero worship, meeting a great man. Like, it's, it's, you know what it sounds like almost? It's very cringy. It's like celebrity culture. Just, it's not Jewish. And I think that's what sometimes... I think rightfully so, creeps people out is when they hear people talk about his kashrus, 
And it sounds like that kind of thing, and they're like, ew, I don't want that. And they're right, you shouldn't want that. I think we have to be very careful how we speak about his kashrus, because it's an intimate relationship. And when you talk about things that are deeply intimate, you have to be very careful how you describe it, because uh, if you speak about it the wrong way, you do a lot of damage. You know, there's a reason why certain topics you don't speak about publicly. Not that we're embarrassed of them. It's not like they're shameful. It's just they're very delicate subjects, and so you need to really say things carefully. Hiskashrus is an intimate relationship. You know, uh, Hillel Padacher said that if Shlema Melech would have been a chosid, then when, when he would have written Shira Shirim, he wouldn't have written it as a mushal of a husband and a wife to describe the connection of Hashem and the Jewish people. He would have used a rabbi and a chosid. So it's, his kashrus is shir hashirim. It's, it's an intimate relationship. I mean, it's yechidus. You're literally becoming one or revealing how you always were one. I guess that's what a marriage is too. You're bringing out your deepest self, your yechidah nefesh. That's very vulnerable. It's very intimate. Not just, not just your nefesh or your, your, your ruach or your neshama or even your chaya. You're bringing out your yechidah. That's raw. That's deep. And you're connecting yechidah to yechidah. Like, this, this is deep stuff. And, if, and if, we, if we speak about it in a superficial way, it can, it can do damage, God forbid. So it's really, really important, especially today. And, and people online can't see. I mentioned this before, and I'll mention it again, that this is like we're in Lubavitch, Shiba Lubavitch right now. We're in the heart of Crown Heights. We're in the Rabashkin House on President Street. You, know, you don't get more Lubavitch than this, right? Um, and, but if you look around, so they can't see online, but I mentioned this is Nashim Tzitkanius. This, these, these, these are women. But this is predominantly a young crowd, so predominantly, uh, I'm the oldest person here for sure. There's no question, okay? Uh, and I think I'm probably twice as old as most of you, and I'm not even that old, despite my white beard. Um, it's a young crowd. And I think it's important... I hope, I hope I'm in touch. I think I'm... Maybe I'm fooling myself to think that I'm in touch with the youth. <laughs> uh, but uh, I think this is a very important concept. We're... Uh, is it, what are we coming up to? What is it, 20, 28 years from Gimel Tamas? And his kashras didn't become less important in those 28 years. It's still, I said already, if this is too intense for you, you're watching online, you, fo- you fell into the wrong and it's okay, there are other Fabrengans going on right now, but this is a real, this is an inner core group. His kashras is the, is, his kashras is not icing on the cake, it's the cake. But if you don't understand what it is, then it sounds really weird because you're saying your relationship with some other person is like essential to your Yiddish, like it's weird. 
That's why we really have to explain this really carefully and really accurately. That if we understand what is a Rebbe, a Rebbe isn't just a person who possesses different qualities. A Rebbe is a Rosh B'nai Yisrael. It's the head of a body to which every cell in that body is connected. And that every cell takes direction and derives vitality from that relationship. In other words, his kashras isn't even a relationship. It's, it's my own existence. I cannot not be me. And when I delve deeply enough into me, what do I find? What do I find in my essence, in my yechidah? which is perfect and pristine and, and godly, even higher than a chilek alikami mal, mamash, because that's only talking about my origins in atzilus. My real essence is even higher than atzilus. It's atzmos itself. And when I, when, when I, when I dig deep enough and, and I finally come face to face with my essence, what do I find? All of the qualities that I understood were a description of the Rebbe, were really descriptions of me. And that everything that I was told about the Rebbe was so that I could understand myself. That I'm above nature. that I can be selfless, <coughs> that I can dedicate my life to Klal Yisroh, that I can have boundless Avas Yisroh, that I can use every moment of my life productively. These, these, these qualities are my qualities, or at least I have access to these qualities, and if, I, and if I'll be persistent and I'll believe in these qualities, I will find these qualities, and not that I have to go out and acquire them, but I'll realize that I have them already. This, this is what chassidus is. Chassidus doesn't add anything to Yiddishkeit. It only turns on the lights and shows us what, what was already in the room that we didn't see. So chassidus reveals dimensions of all of reality that were unnoticed. But Probably most importantly, Chassidus reveals aspects of ourselves that were unnoticed, that we were ignorant or oblivious to. Mashiach is going to come, the Rambam says, all Jews are going to be Chachomim Gedeilim. The whole world's going to come, run to the Jewish people, tell us, explain to us the deepest secrets of the universe. Well, that's happening soon. Are you getting ready for that? You're warming up yet? Like, you ready? Because the world is already coming and asking us to explain what is going on. And when we say, well, we don't know, they, they don't believe us. Then they start making stuff up. <laughs> if we claim we don't understand what's happening in the world, then they just start attributing conspiracy theories to us. So we, we better just tell them the truth. We better tell them, Nisavel yesterday, Tell him the had a taiva, he created Elam Haze, he, he wants the world to be holier than heaven. Tell him everything. 
Everything you learn in Chassidus. What, what, what are you hiding for? You're the, you're the leader of world Jewry. You're the leader of world Jewry. This is what the Lubavitcher Rebbe said. You know, the Baal Shem Tev had a period of his, his life where he was in hiding. He was a tzaddik nister. He was a covert tzaddik. And finally, he was forced to reveal himself. There's a whole story about Adam Baal Shem. Revealed to the Baal Shem Tev about his previous Gilgal. The whole story, he wrote it on a manuscript and he hid it in a field. Or his son hid it in the field, and Adam's son hid it, and then the Baal Shem Tev found it when he was a shepherd. And it revealed to him that in a previous lifetime, he was a simple Jew in the city of Tzvas. You guys all know this story, but I want you to listen to the story this time and realize that it's not just a story that you could learn from, this is part of your biography. The story is you. This is you. The Baal Shem Tov was a Neshama Klolis. There's a story about the Baal Shem Tov. It's a story about you. So, the Baal Shem Tov in a previous life was a simple Jew, a hidden tzaddik. He lived in the city of Tzvas. And one day, Eliyahu Novi, the prophet Elijah, came to him, appeared to him, and said, I'm coming from heaven. And I want to know, in heaven they are absolutely um, awestruck by something that you did on your bar mitzvah day. And I want to know what it was. And the simple Jew said, what I did on my bar mitzvah day, I did only for Hashem. It's a secret, and I'm not going to talk about it. And Elio Novi said, I'm, I'm Elio Novi. Like, you could tell me. It's like telling your doctor, it's okay, you could confide in me. And the simple Jew said, what I did on my bar mitzvah day, I did only for Hashem, and I'm not going to share it with anyone, even Elio Novi. And Elio made all types of promises, it didn't, it didn't work, the guy wasn't going to share it. He, that's it, he never shared it. So that Odin Baal Shem shared what the Baal Shem Tev, that was you in a previous life. And you went to your grave with your secret. And the world never knew of you. But this time around, you don't have that luxury. The world needs you. And you're going to have to reveal yourself. And it was painful. It's not what the Baal Shem Tov wanted, but he revealed himself. Baal Shem Tov, at 26, started learning with Achia Shalini for 10 years, and then at 36, he revealed himself, and he lived for another 26 years, until 62. And that's sort of like the story of all of us. We're, we're all being told in this generation the leader of this generation, the Mesha of this generation, got up on day one and he said, you're going to bring Mashiach. 
First of all, the job is we're, fi- we're finishing everything, we're bringing Mashiach. Second of all, you're going to do it. No, I don't mean the person next to you. I mean you. You're going to bring Mashiach. And nobody could believe it. <laughs> Forget about a hint. Forget about not taking a hint. We didn't take an explicit statement. And then, Tavshin Nun Aleph, Chav the Rebbe said, I finished. You guys are going to do this on your own. Get to work. Come up with an idea. And still, and still, the Rebbe is speaking very explicitly. No, it can't mean that. can't mean that. What's the tragedy here? Maybe the Rebbe came to this world for a job, and his job, maybe, is to reveal to you your greatness. So why are we not letting the Rebbe do his job? If the Rebbe's job is to reveal the greatness of every Jew, so you Lubavitchers, and I'm including myself in this, oh, you Lubavitchers, when you hear about the greatness of every Jew, you know where you go with that immediately? The greatness of every Jew, you know what it means to you? To me too. I, I, I'm, I'm victim to the same thing. It's, it's a cultural thing. When we speak about the greatness of every Jew, so immediately in our minds where we go is we say, oh yeah, this, this some 70-year-old intermarried guy who can't read an Aleph, and he doesn't know what day Yim Kippur is, and he's just as Jewish as Moshe Rabbeinu. Which is true, which is true. But it's only part of the story, and it's the comfortable part of the story. We're comfortable with the 70-year-old Balshemsky Yid who doesn't know what the Yim Kippur is and doesn't even know his Hebrew name. You know, the guy who comes into a Chabad house who accidentally wanders in on Yim Kippur because he needs a jump for his car, and then they give him an aliyah, <laughs> and they ask him, Ya Maid, what's your Hebrew name? I don't know. Harry. <laughs> he doesn't even know his Hebrew name. And we're like, this guy's beautiful. Anishama! And it's true. It's true. I'm not saying it's not true. It is true. But how come that part of it is easy for us? And the other part of it, the part that applies when we're looking in the mirror, there's a whoa, 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 whoa. Don't get any big idea. <laughs> Don't go so far. And that may be it. I don't know. It, it, it occurs to me now. You're saying the suggestion was made. Maybe we're uncomfortable with it because it demands from us. That could be the entire... Maybe we're afraid of hard work. Could, could be the answer. Mm-hmm. I, I'll, I'll tell you a story in support of that. There were once in Lubavitch, the uh, Rebbe Rishab, they used to bring him food there was a Mashadis, an attendant, that would bring him food. And uh, he would barely pick at his food. I mean, he wasn't interested too much in eating. He would just learn and learn all day. And uh, so he would eat something off the plate, and then he would be done with it, and then he would put it on the windowsill. And this attendant would come and clear the, the food from the windowsill. Now, if you've ever been to a Rebbe Shatish, like by the Pelashech Sidim. There's a thing called Shirayim. And it's a big thing. 
The Rebbe eats a small piece of food from a platter. Sometimes they have a kugel that's like massive, like as wide as this table. And the Rebbe will eat one piece, and then everyone dives in to get the leftovers. And by eating from the leftovers of the tzaddik, this confers blessing and merit. So it's a popular thing. Anyways, there were a couple of Pele Shabachrim in Lubavitch. And they saw the Rebbe Rashab's leftovers sitting on his windowsill. And they, they saw their chance. Because <laughs> in Lubavitch we don't do the Shirayim thing. So now they saw a chance for Shirayim. So uh, they waited and they snuck up to the windowsill. And they took the, whatever it was, the little morsel of food. And as they're about to sneak off, the Rebbe Rashab, who was engrossed and involved with me, and I'm going to start revealing all of the amazing things that you were meant to accomplish in your life. And you're going to have no choice but to live up to it. <laughs> so be careful. Just be careful if that's... Because there are other Rebbe's who will, they won't force you to do that. There are other Rebbe's who don't mind for you to admire them and let them be holy and you be the observer. But I'm not going to let you do that. I'm not going to let you be the observer. I'm going to put you to work. And I'm not going to put you to work by giving you somebody else's job. No, this is much more difficult to worm your way out of. I'm going to put you to work by revealing to you your unique job that only your neshama can accomplish. And then what choice will you have? After you have that truth bomb, you're going, to be, you're going to be totally stuck. What are you going to do after that truth bomb goes off? After you realize your unique mission in the world, it's over. You know, the, the famous story in, in connection with Yud Tes Kislev is that the, the Alter Rebbe was, he knew they were coming for him, the authorities were coming for him for, for some time. And uh, he finally came to a point where he had to make a decision if he's going to continue running. So he asked his chassid, the Rebbe Shmuel Munkus. He said, should I continue running? Or should I let them catch me? So Shmuel Munkus said to the Alter Rebbe, either way, it doesn't make a difference. Either way. Because if you're a rabbi, then they have no control over you. They can't do anything to you that you don't let them do to you. And if you're not a rabbi, then whatever they do to you serves you right for having deprived so many Jews of their pleasure in this world. Now, we all know, we, I'm saying this core group over here, that Shmuel Munkus was a character. He was a, he was a colorful guy. But even for a character and a colorful guy, that's a wild thing to say to a Rebbe. It's a wild thing to say to anyone you respect, let, let alone to a Rebbe. What did Shmuel Munkus mean?
And where did the Altarebbe ever take away anyone's pleasure? Was he like walking into the ice cream shop, knocking people's cups over? <laughs> All he did was teach Chassidus, like, if you don't like what he's saying, just don't listen. Go, go eat your ice cream. Don't listen. What Reb Shmuel was saying was that after we heard the truth from you, we could never go back to our old lives. You ruined it for us. Whatever we thought was pleasurable. And by the way, for Reb Shmuel, I'm sure it wasn't ice cream. I'm sure, though, on his level, he had his tithes. I mean, he was a, he himself was a tzaddik and a, and a, and a, and a talmud chacham. So his tithes were probably more refined tithes. It was probably learning and davening. But you revealed to us the truth that we're here for a job and that each one of us has a unique job that no other neshama can replicate. And the entire universe, Bishvili Nivra Ha'elam Ha'elam, the Tzimtzumarishain, is my fault. Not my fault, I didn't do it, I didn't make the Tzimtzumarishain, but sort of I did actually. Because Bimin Nimloch, Binishmeseim Shal Tzadikim, Vamich Kulam Tzadikim, so even that, yeah, it is kind of my fault. And if it, even if you argue somehow it's not my fault, but it's still my job. Now it's my job to reveal Oyer Einsof Lamate in Elam Hazagashmi. It's my job. It's not somebody else's job. I can't pawn that off on somebody else, not even on the Labavacher Rebbe, and say that's the Labavacher Rebbe's job and not my job. It's my job. How can I go back to my old life knowing that? So Reb Shmuel was telling the Alter Rebbe, you told us too much of the truth now for us to ever go back and enjoy what we used to enjoy. Even if you let us do it, it's not enjoyable anymore. So like if I tell you, what doll did you want when you were five years old? Okay, you know what? I'll buy it for you. Go play with it. I don't even want it. But you cried for it when you were five. You made your parents crazy for it. Here, go play with it now. I don't want to play with it. It's boring. I don't want... No, play with it. I can't. I don't... I grew out of it. I'm sorry. I can't enjoy it anymore. And that's what Chassidus does. I was in London the other day. I was in Stamford Hill. And I was talking to them about Yeridus on the Shama Baguf. <laughs> I told them, uh, it was what I was mentioning earlier, a few minutes ago, <laughs> I said that, I don't even know why I said this to them, but it was probably way too esoteric. But, the Alter Rebbe says in Lukotei Torah, that's talking about you, when you go out, when you, the real you, your neshama goes out, goes out from where? 
your real home, your real origin, from heaven, to the war of embodiment. So the Rebbe asks a simple question. It causes a lot of trouble with one simple question. That posik, he say to Lamalchama, Rashi says, Bimilchemis Rashus Hakasif Medaber is talking about an optional war. It's not a Milchemis mitzvah like Amalek or the Kanaim. It's a Milchemis Rashus. It's an optional war where the, the king, let's say, decides that we're going to expand territory and then they go to the Sanhedrin and they approve a declaration of war. So the Rebbe says that it has to be consistent. If Rashi says that Pshute Shal Mikra is talking about an optional war, then even on the level of Soid, the spiritual interpretation also has to be a Melchemist Rashus, an optional war. How in the world do we describe Yeridus and Neshama, the descent of the soul into a body, as an optional war? When was I given an option? Do you know what the Rebbe says? Chazal tell us that Hashem had a consultant for creation. Bimin Nimloch, with whom did he consult? Nimloch. He consulted with the souls of the righteous. Who are the souls of the righteous? Like the Navi says, all of the Jewish people are called righteous. And certainly you and your Neshama state are righteous. So, was your embodiment in the physical world an option that you chose and you opted in? You clicked, yes, I agree to the terms and conditions. Click, yes. Yes, it was. In fact, not only was your embodiment something you agreed to, but the entire project of creation, all of Seder is Stauschless. So the Tzimtzumarishin was also, like I said, it's also my fault. You opted in. You said, let's go for it. Why would a neshama agree to such a thing? That's so not fair, though. What's not fair? That's just like the story that the Tzimach said it tells about, um, what's it called, the three, where he, um, the story tells us of them, he's like, oh, so is he innocent? And they go, he's innocent, he's innocent. Oh, the Bezdin. Yeah, correct, well, correct, yeah. Right. Right, because they can't relate to it. Yeah. So actually. So actually, if you look. In the Maim Rabim, the Rebbe actually says this. It's wild. What you're saying is exactly, yeah. The Maim Rabim, the Rebbe says that not, not only were the Neshamas agreeing, but the Neshamas that exist before creation were doing it as souls within bodies. And you're going to say, how can that be? Chronologically, that doesn't make sense. What chronology? We're talking about something that's completely above time and space. So, in other words, your infinity, your unlimitedness, 
you're nimno hamnimnois, which you normally, <laughs> in Chakira, it speaks about Hashem is nimno hamnimnois. Hashem is held back from all holdings back. There's nothing impossible for him. The Rebbe always used that to describe Jews. A yid is nimno hamnimnois. So, infinity is a paradox. So you, as an embodied soul, agreed to this concept called embodiment that didn't yet exist. Wrap your head around that. May I add Or another way of saying that is that Hashem's, Hashem's empathy for the embodied neshama is far more than just empathy. Your experience is Hashem having that experience. That's a, that's a little bit more of a difficult concept because it's a, it's a fundamental paradox. So it requires maintaining contradictory concepts simultaneously. But let's go to something that... It, it's a, anyways, I, I only mentioned that because I was saying I was in Stamford Hill. But, and, I, and I told them that, and I probably shouldn't have... If it was challenging in Crown Heights, it probably was not the right... Uh, right line for Stanford Hill. But at any rate, so I was explaining to them over there that, um, you know, we came down to the world for, for this mission, for this purpose. And so they were saying, like, well, wouldn't it just be safer not to do that? And I was like, yeah, that's my point. It would have been totally safer not to, like, so why would we take the risk? <laughs> like, like, why would I risk it? Like, let me stay in heaven and not come down, and I won't risk. So I said, that's exactly what I'm, the point I'm trying to make. That if it's about your spiritual status, then, yeah, embodiment is not worth it. Like, why risk it? Even if you have a little aliyah from it, or even a big aliyah, it's just, it's not worth it. Don't do it. But when you understand that you have a mission and the whole universe was created for that mission, then it becomes your obligation. It's your duty. Forget about risk and reward. It's my duty. So where I belong. They, they even asked me a question. They said, well, what about a neshama that finished its tikkun in this world? Because I mentioned this world is the only place where you can actually 
do Hashem's will. And uh, the souls in heaven, they have a lot of giluyim, they see godliness, but they're not, they're not able to be godliness. They're not, not able to actually channel and be a conduit to express God, which is what we do in a body when we do a mitzvah. So they're able to have a subjective relationship, but not an objective relationship. They observe Hashem as a, an observer, as a, two entities, one observing and beholding the other. But the soul in a body, we lose out on all that consciousness and sensitivity. We don't really observe much because the sensorial overload of the, 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 the physical body kind of covers up on that. But what we gain is the objective experience of actually being the channel for godliness. And that's why the souls are jealous of souls in bodies. So they're like, but what about a soul that finished its tikkun? Now it's done. What does it need this world for anymore? So I said, but Mashiach isn't here yet. The world still needs fixing. And they said, but if my soul finished, so it's done. It's done. It doesn't have to worry about that anymore. So I said to them, you guys, it was, it was women. I said, your mommies, you ever tell your kids to clean up the house? Everyone, come on, let's pitch in, teamwork. And then you see one kid sitting around doing nothing. You're like, why, why are you doing nothing? Oh, because I finished my job. Well, then help the little kids. Like, let's, don't stop until we finish. Let's finish the job. Let's finish the job. So what I'm saying is, <laughs> maybe before the Alter Rebbe, a person could be comfortable with the idea my spirituality is good. I did my job. I accomplished what I need to accomplish. But comes the Alter Rebbe and says, it's not about you, it's about the universe. And until Mashiach is here, until this world is so holy that the souls from Gan Eden can't get any higher by going to higher levels of Gan Eden. The only way for them to get higher is through Trias Amesim, to come back down into the physical body because the physical world will be that holy. Until that happens, the job isn't done. So how can you rest? And once upon a time, that mentality was the exclusive domain of one person in a generation. That mentality that I cannot rest until the world is perfected, that was considered, that, that, that's, that's a Rebbe. That's not normal people, even tzaddikim, even normal, quote-unquote, normal tzaddikim. That's not how they thought. I have to do my job. Only, you only have a unique individual a rare and unique individual who doesn't even come to the world for his own spirituality, just comes to the world for the world. And the revolution of Chassidus is that it's not one person. That it's literally every single Jew. Remember what someone was saying earlier before about Atmos. It's impossible. What was the double, double negative? You can never not have a subjective. And I said, you're right. It's like inherent that your, your perspective of Atmos is going to be subjective. 
So here's, here's the thing. And remember what I said? I know it was like two hours ago, but you remember what I said? That once you perceive it, then you are it. Because atmos means the essence of all reality, which is totality and oneness. Not just singularity, but wholeness. In which case, there's nothing apart from it or distinct from it. So once I identify it, I am it. So what does that mean? That means that ultimately, I'm forced to recognize the fact that all truth is ultimately self-knowledge. And that if I dig deep enough to discover the essence of reality, I will discover that I'm not distinct from that truth. I cannot stand apart from absolute reality as an observer, watching it, beholding it, even taking it in with awe, being impressed by it, being moved by it. But then it's still not it, because I'm still standing separately from it. To truly see it is to be forced to come to the conclusion that I must be it. And therefore, every single thing that Torah teaches me is not just talking to me, it's talking about me. Yeah, sure. We've been doing that the whole time. Um, I don't know. For, it's just coming to mind. Like, what's malfunctioning if, like, when, let's say I'm at the aisle, which is when I'm the most exposed to the truth of who I am, okay. have, like, the opposite response of, like, my brain starts thinking about nonsense? You're going with my premise, that when you're standing at the aisle, your truest self is exposed. Yes. Okay, fine. So, like, a lot of times, when I'm there, I'll start thinking about like supper. Right. And then, and then it's like, it really spirals of like, you're really bad news. Right. And then like, this is when I'm supposed to feel the most. Right. So you're standing yourself. at the aisle and you're thinking about supper. Okay. And then you probably feel bad. Really bad. You feel guilty. Bad. Right. 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 By the way, is this very different from. At least on the surface level, is that very different than the problem the Alter Rebbe describes in Perek Chav Ches of Tanya? That just at the time when you're trying to daven, that's when the Machshav Azorahs come flooding in. On the surface level, at least, is it so different from that problem that's described in chapter 28 of Tanya? You remember what he says over there? That you think the fact that your, thought, that your mind wanders while you're davening means that you weren't davening well. No, it's a sign of the exact opposite. You were davening so well that the animal soul felt threatened and it started pushing back. So then how are you ever supposed to experience that? that you think, like what the thing with the old comment of like, I'll go instead of like, right. do we have to like, does it happen or not? So, so here's the thing. You're asking, does it happen or not? When does it happen? And, and my answer to you is, it happens every time. Whether you're aware of it or not. 
precisely because it's not about a subjective experience. It's not about seeing something. It's about being something. The goal, and this is the Aveda of a lifetime, is to try to align the subjective to the objective. But don't be discouraged when that doesn't happen right away, or even if you have setbacks. Because wherever you're at subjectively, in refining your conscious experience, the objective reality remains. And as long as you know that, and as long as you know that that is the reality, the real reality, then you're okay. The problem is when we start buying into the hype and we believe that my thinking about supper is the real me. I may not be able to control the fact that I'm, at, I'm standing at the oil and I'm thinking about supper, but at least I can know the truth that the thought about supper is not the real me. It's, it's a distraction. And it's not really worthy of a lot of attention or energy. Not even worthy of discussion. It shouldn't even, not even worthy of being discussed at this febrang. It's such a supper. You didn't think about it. No, I did. Yeah, but not you. <laughs> not the real you. Don't think so black and white. Again, it's an avoida of a lifetime. It's gradual. It's not a revolutionary event. It's an evolutionary process. Over a lifetime, hopefully, we will start to align our subjective experience with the objective truth. But don't be discouraged when there's a whole alternate narrative going on in your mind. Now, that's why we prepare ourselves for Yechidus. Because we want our subjective experience to be in line with the objective reality. But you want to know something? At a certain point, you go in anyway. And even if your subjective experience isn't what it ought to be, the objective reality is what it is. Okay, I have an idea. Here's my idea. Yisro, can you hear me? Mm -hmm. I hope you can hear me. Because you're monitoring the live stream. How about we go out for 15 minutes. Let the ladies sing some songs. We'll turn off the live stream so you have your privacy. You'll tell us when it's clear and then we'll come back and we'll, we'll talk some more. One second. We're on? We're back? Okay. Right, that was a little musical uh, intermission interlude. Yeah. You want, you want to say something? Last time. Oh, a few minutes ago. Yes. Okay. Yeah. You are not your thoughts. But you're not your thoughts. Your, 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 your thoughts. It's two separate. Right. 
which is why my own thoughts can be self-betrayal. Now, sometimes my thoughts are true to myself, and that's the greatest thing, is when I'm acting like who I really am. So my behaviors and my speech and my thoughts are reflecting who I really am, and that's, that's the best. But even in a case where I'm acting, speaking, and thinking in ways that are a betrayal of who I am, it doesn't change who I am. Yeah. 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 The drop of water. Yeah. So being a clean drop, yeah. Yes. So the question was, what does it mean to be a clean drop, a droplet? So I don't think I said it explicitly enough. I think I, I took an hour to say it and I never said it in one sentence. You know what it means to be a clean droplet of water that reflects the sun? It means to stop blocking the truth. Stop fighting the truth. Stop arguing with the Rebbe when the Rebbe tells you who you are. So being clean means, will you just stop already and admit that you are godly? That's what being clean means. And being turned toward the sun, or the droplet to reflect the, the, the light of the sun has to be angled toward the sun. It means we have to realize that it's in our relationship with the Rebbe, it's in his kashras that we reveal the greatness that we're able to reveal. So, a chassid, by becoming bottled to the Rebbe, becomes a greater person, not less of a person. The great misunderstanding of Bittel is that it won't make us less effective it actually makes us more effective, more influential, and more ambitious, too, because it's God's agenda, and it has no limit. Are you able to talk more about what that looks like practically, though? Like, you know that, like, humility doesn't mean denying the things I'm good at, but, like, if you in practice, though, I feel like a lot of people have a, I mean, I'm going to include myself here, that it's hard to know that balance between, like, Acknowledging your greatness and using it, but not really accrediting it to yourself—kind of like a very difficult balance to have. Um, I don't know if it's a balance. A balance implies going back and forth from two different positions. I think it's one position. You flip the switch. Okay. The position is ain't aid malvade. There's nothing but Hashem, and therefore. Everything that I'm able to do is only because Hashem is doing it through me. It's not like, well, sometimes I take the credit, but then to be humble, I offset it by giving Hashem half, half the credit. Like, and we go back and forth. Like, no, there's no balance. It's, it's all Hashem. And I'll tell you something even more. When we talk about his kashas, about the Reb and the Chassid relationship, about what does it really mean to be bottled to the Reb, to really just say, I'm ready to surrender. I'm ready to be subsumed in this relationship because ultimately, what am I surrendering to? It's my own true self. So I can't lose myself in myself. I can only find myself. 
the Rebbe modeled that in his kashas, in his, his kashas with, with, with his Rebbe. Because the entire time, the Rebbe never stopped saying, Nesidereinu, the Rebbe deshver. And when the Rebbe would speak about the shluchim, he would speak about the shluchim of Nesidereinu, the Rebbe deshver, and never stopped being that the Rebbe was always the Friedrich Rebbe. So, did the Rebbe ever feel that his accomplishments were a threat that would overshadow the leadership of his Rebbe? No, because to the Rebbe, it was all an extension of his Rebbe's Nesias. Just like the Rebbe taught us to be when the Rebbe kept saying, Shliach Sha'adam Kameisei, go out and be great. Trust me. You're not putting the Rebbe out of a job by being great. That is the Rebbe's job, is to facilitate your greatness. So whatever it is, I can't tell each and every one of you what your mission in life is. But when you see opportunities to do something, step up and do it. And don't be ashamed. The clean droplet means that you don't have the noise of the false humility of the ego interfering with your natural godliness. How do you achieve it? You, you test Kislev, you come to a Fabrengen, you hear the, the, the ideas spoken about, you try to internalize them. You read it. drop has so much dirt in it, and like, meaning like someone, like, someone yeah. has such a strong inner voice that's so like opposing of the, seeing yeah. that reflection of the sun inside of themselves. How do they get those tools from Hasidus? And not have to turn to like alternative healing. See, the thing about Chassidus Chabad is that Chabad means Chochmah Bin Adas, which are the three sectors of the intellect. Now, the ultimate objective of Chassidus Chabad is not to become smarter or to improve your mind. That's not the goal. It's the tool. The goal is to become bottle, to become surrendered to Hashem and to allow Hashem to flow through you. But the tool is Chochmah Bin Adas. So what does that mean? It means that the main work that I need to do is to reframe my thinking to challenge certain axioms and beliefs that I have about reality, and, and most pointedly about myself. And the way that I do that is by learning the truth, and not just learning the truth, but sitting down slowly, carefully, analyzing, digesting it, internalizing it, until those ideas actually become more logical to me than than my self-imposed beliefs. In other words, there are other approaches other than Chabad. And to paint with a broad brush, you know, to overgeneralize for the sake of convenience, let's say there's faith and there's, there's intellect. Um, the approach of faith would be to say, look, there are things that you can't understand, but believe that they're true. 
and if you're having a hard time believing it, so we'll, we'll tell you some things that are inexplicable, that you can't explain with your mind, and then you'll just sort of accept that there are things that are bigger than your mind. So we'll maybe tell you about some miracles that some righteous people did, and uh, maybe even show you some miracles, and, and then you'll, you'll sufficiently doubt your own mind, and you'll say, you know what, there, there are things at work that are greater than my comprehension, and then just, you'll sort of like defer, you'll set aside your intellect and accept these, these higher truths, even though you don't understand them. That's one approach. That's not Chabad. That's not the Chabad approach. The Chabad approach is, listen, you have a certain worldview right now, even if you can't identify it and label it as a discrete ideology, you do have a worldview, whatever it is, even if it's idiosyncratic to you, even if it's the worldview that you made up, you have a certain way of looking at life. Okay, well, just like you taught yourself <laughs> that way of looking at things, we're going to teach you a new way of looking at things. And that's why in Chabad we break everything down, we explain it, and even spiritual stuff where you would think, we would just say, listen, it's, it's not relatable, you can't really... Just, just believe it. Just believe it. Don't worry about it because these are things that you'll never really be able to hold in your hand and touch and see. They're, they're, they're spiritual. They're abstract. But we don't say that. Instead, what do we do? We come up with mashalim. We have metaphors. We like go to great lengths to break these things down and explain them and try to make them as relatable as possible. Why? Because the whole point is I'm trying to replace my old worldview with a new worldview. I, I can't just tell myself, listen, Ignore your present worldview because there's some truth that's greater than, than, than you could ever fathom. It's not, that's not the Chabad approach. The Chabad approach is, listen, take this worldview that you currently constructed for yourself and replace it with another worldview. Now that doesn't negate the fact that there will always remain that which is above our ability to comprehend. Of course, and Ultimately, we always come to faith because where the intellect gives out, faith begins. The ceiling of intellect is the, is the basement of, of belief. But until I get to that maximum point, until I've actually maxed out my intellectual capability, which is why, by the way, it's different for every individual depending on your, on your intellectual capacity. Until I've maxed out that capacity, I'm not doing myself a favor by allowing inaccurate worldviews to, rem- to remain so dominant in my, in my conscious thinking. So I've got to replace that stuff. Replace it with what? With the worldview that this Chabad offers me. Now, maybe it'll be more helpful to describe it like this. People, sometimes they ask, at the end of the day, Chassidus Chabad, you're learning the things that are, that are ultimately unknowable. Like... You're learning about Hashem, and you can't know Hashem. So, how are you going to... You, you'll never learn 100%. So what do you think? You'll learn 1%? Hashem is infinite. It's not even... It's, it's, even a 1% of infinity is zero. It's nothing. That's like an argument that's made to question the Chabad approach. And, and the answer is... Well, the question is predicated on a false premise. I am not purporting to attempt to learn any fraction of the infinite one, because there's no fraction of the infinite that I can ever acquire. I don't need to learn a certain amount of Hashem's 
who Hashem is in order to accomplish what I need to accomplish. I'm, I'm not measuring how much of Hashem I understand. Because ultimately, however much I understand, it's still a, it's still a fraction of infinity, which means it's zero. So it's not what amount of Hashem do I understand. Effectively, the answer is zero. The question, the proper question is, what amount of my thinking is infused with Hashem? You understand the difference? It's a critical difference. It's not how much of Hashem do I understand. Effectively zero, because whatever amount it is, compared to infinity, it's zero. So don't ask myself, how much of Hashem do I understand? Zero. Ask myself, how much of my current thinking is infused with knowledge of Hashem? And that has an answer, and it's quantifiable. There is an answer. I don't know if I, I could accurately self-assess, but whatever it is, maybe it's 50% infused with Hashem and 50% with self-concern and uh, the survival impulses of the animal soul that, that's seeking out uh, the illusion of security through, through material uh, acquisitions. And, but whatever it is, it, it, whether it's 50-50 or it's 10-90 or 90-10, there's a number to it, and the goal is 100 now, do I have to beat myself up if I'm not yet at 100? No, obviously not. But the goal is 100. I want all of my thinking to be aligned with the objective truth. And that's, that's why we learn chsidis. Chsidis isn't just a culture, although it is that as well. That's why we say, L'shana teva b'limad chsidis u'bedarke because Dark Exodus describes the cultural aspect of, of, of Exodus. But primarily, especially in Chabad, is Limad Exodus. It's the Torah Sabal Shamtav, not just Derech Sabal Shamtav. You know, there's a, an introduction to the bilingual Tanya. Lubavitch of the United Kingdom made a bilingual Tanya. The whole story about how that came into existence. Zalman Jaffe was the main driver behind it. It's a, it's a very interesting story. But there's a, an introduction to the bilingual Tanya that's written by the Rebbe in English. Meaning to say, it's not translated into English, it's the Rebbe's English. Which, my mama Lushen is English. My nephew Obama speaks English. So anything that's from the Rebbe's English has a very special place in my heart. You know, I, I, I've, I've mentioned previously, letters of the Rebbe that the Rebbe wrote in English really impact me very deeply. And somebody took me aside and they said, the Rebbe didn't write any letters in English. And I know what they meant. I know what they were trying to say. But since I have a public platform, I want to speak about that for a second. It's not, it's not a, an honest statement to make to say that Rebbe didn't write in English. Because if that's what you're saying, then you could say that Rebbe didn't write letters in Hebrew or Yiddish. We all know how the system worked. The Rebbe tra- uh, dictated. The letters were transcribed. The secretaries transcribed the Rebbe's dictation. So <laughs> whether it was English or Yiddish or or French, the Rebbe didn't write these letters, the Rebbe dictated them. But then, if it had the Rebbe's signature, the Rebbe edited every word, and there are literally hundreds of pages of 
Ksav Yad Kodshay in English, just in case you think that maybe the Rebbe didn't know what he was signing. There are hundreds of pages of the Rebbe making edits in English down to spelling and, and grammatical uh, edits and even you know, punctuation. And uh, if the Rebbe signed something, whatever language it was in, it was the Rebbe's words down to the punctuation. So, anyways, there's an English introduction to the bilingual Tanya, which the Rebbe signed. And the first sentence is, Chsidis in general, and Chabad Chsidis in particular, is... He says Chabad Chassidus, not Chassidus Chabad, because he's writing English. Chassidus in general and Chabad Chassidus in particular is. Okay, before I even finish that sentence, that sentence, or that beginning of a sentence, should capture the attention of anyone who has ever studied Chassidus, because it's something we struggle to define so often, what is Hasidic? I don't know. Hasidic philosophy. Yeah. You know, filling his phylacteries. The Mishkan's a tabernacle. To say Hasidic is Hasidic philosophy. What is it? What, tell, what, what is Hasidic? So the Rebbe has a sentence in English that starts, Hasidic in particular, and Chabad Hasidic in general is. You've got to be interested to know how that sentence finishes. Okay, so it says like this. Chassidus in general, Chabad Chassidus in particular is an all-embracing worldview and way of life. Let me pause there for a second. Because each, each of these words has so much meaning. All-embracing. That modifier, that adjective, all-embracing. That's what I was alluding to earlier when I said, don't ask me how much of Hashem do I know, because effectively it's zero. Ask me how much of my consciousness is infused with the knowledge of Hashem. So when we say all-embracing, what do we mean? It means I cannot compartmentalize. It means I can't relegate my Yiddishkeit to one part of my my mind, and then keep another part of my mind for some other worldview. In fact, that's what the Rebbe says, the prohibition of keeping false weights and measures means in Ruchnius. The pro, it's, you're not allowed to keep false weights and measures, even if you don't use them. So the Rebbe says, what does that mean in Ruchnius? You're not allowed to have a false worldview even if you only use it for philosophizing and you don't actually let it inform your, your behavioral choices. Meaning to say, of course, at the end of the day, I'll behave like a chassid. But in my mind, I have this little part where I still think the way that I want to think. So all-embracing. Okay. All-embracing what? Worldview and way of life. I love that. Worldview and way of life. Because worldview is like, to me, in my mind, limit chassidus. And way of life is dark exodus. 
worldview is the Chabad, the Seichel, the ideology. Way of life is the culture. But which comes first? The worldview before the way of life. Meaning primarily it's an ideology and then next comes the culture. Like people say, well, how do you get Lubavitchers to go on Shlichus and devote their lives to Avis Yisrael? How, what, do you, what bribe do you give them? The answer is no bribe. You can't convince people to do this by promising them rewards. They'll only do it if they find it intrinsically valuable. In other words, the people who are ready to go anywhere just to help Jews, the, the mentality that leads to that is not that you have to go on Shlichus. No, it's you get to go on Shlichus. It's a... It's an opportunity. It's a gift. I get to go devote my life to helping others. But what people don't realize is they they see that in a vacuum, or they try to perceive it in a vacuum, decontextualize it, and then they try to reproduce it, and you can't. Because if you don't have a pedagogic base of Tanya informing you ideologically, it's impossible to get from that to living that way just by mimicking the outer manifestations of it. In other words, the way of life is a teitzah, it's, a, it's an expression of the worldview. But devoid of the worldview, you wouldn't have that way of life. You understand what I'm saying? Okay, but if we're still in the middle of the sentence. Yeah? Like all-encompassing, it's like yechida. All-encompassing, like yechida, yeah. Yes. Yes. It applies to every aspect of life. That's right. That's right. And that's why everything that I experience is, the Baal Shem said, everything we see is an instruction how to serve Hashem. Without exception. It's not like a lot of things that you see teach you how to serve Hashem. No, everything you see is divine communication. God is speaking to you through every detail that is in, in your consciousness. The etzim, the oil. It's everything. It's all encompassing. And that's yeah, and that's why even in a little bit of it you find all of it. What? Yeah. Yeah. The false weights and measures. You shouldn't harbor false beliefs even if you don't act on them, right? Okay. So um, what I what I heard you saying was even though let's say you you go in accordance uh, to the Chabad beliefs, right. you shouldn't have um, the other ones in your mind. If there is a possibility to still have the other ones in your mind, once you have the Chabad beliefs, then how would you ever get rid of it? Like, like we've been saying, it's, it's replacement. But it's not replacement. It's a process. It's a process. It's a process of replacement. See, machshav is an interesting thing. Someone, we started off this, since we came back from the, from the nigunim, somebody said, you are not your thoughts, right? That's how we started off. Right, because thoughts are funny. They're not 
you, but they're very close to you. In other words, actions are much farther away from you. They're the external garment, the levush hachitzayin. And dibur, speech, is a little bit closer. Machshava is really close. It almost feels like it is me because it's happening internally. But it isn't me. It's an expression of self. It's not self. So here's the thing. Um, my thoughts are not me, and they may not even be true to me. In fact, they may be total betrayals of self. But to what degree? Qualitatively and quantitatively, there are degrees. Meaning to say, it may be false, but how false? It may be false, but how often am I thinking these false thoughts? So what I'm saying is, it's not either or. It's not on off. There are gradations. And so, I need to replace the false thinking. So, so for instance, so for instance, you're putting in an investment right now, sitting at a Fabreng in Yutes Kislev. What's the purpose of sitting here for so long? And why am I talking for so long? Because the goal here is that the more we talk about this, and the more articulately we can express it, the more we're rewiring our minds. We're creating new neural pathways. And hopefully those become well-tread so that the next time I have a real-life dilemma, my assessment is going to go to the Hasidic understanding of it more quickly. Even if I also go to an animalistic interpretation, but at least... I'll come to the truth a little bit more quickly and have an easier time of seeing reality as it objectively is. So you say, like, talk, talk about it and, and basically Learn about it, talk about it, talk about it, learn about it, meditate on it, talk to yourself about it, which is a fancy, which is a not fancy, the opposite fancy, a down-to-earth way of saying meditation. Meditation is a fancy way of saying talk to yourself. Hmm? Journal, journal. And by the way, let me, let me say also, if you get over your, if you get over your, 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 your false humility and your, your animal soul's low self-esteem that denies your, your godly creative power, then not only should you journal, but you should write for the public. Because you will never understand an idea, any idea, but I'm speaking now about Chassidus, as clearly as when you express that idea. So, write an essay, make a meme, write a song. No, I'm, any form of, of creativity will solidify the thinking. And, and whatever it is, paint a, paint a picture, um, deliver a speech. Self-expression is so important to really, really Opening up those those new patterns of thought. Um, Don't you think ninety percent of your thoughts are low self-esteem? But it's interesting, why are you saying the shell and the turtle? Where did you get that metaphor? Uh, 
So, Kahadain Kamsa Shluvishay Mineubay. You know, there is such a metaphor about the turtle. But you know what the. But can I tell you something? Is it okay? Can I align your thoughts to the Chabad truth? The metaphor of the turtle. Yes, it is. And from Tanya and from many places in Chassidus. But do you know what Chassidus says about the turtle shell? That you can't cover yourself with yourself. That ultimately, the shell is part of the turtle. And therefore, for instance, when Hashem is hiding behind the world and we see the Bria instead of the Beta, we have to realize, hold on a second, that itself is also Hashem. So really, our self-expression is not self. However, it is, and our goal has to be to align our self-expression with ourself. And what's more, the ultimate purpose of the world and of your coming into the world is self-expression. It's to take what you are objectively and always have been, always will be, and to express it outwardly, objectively. That's why Mashiach has to happen in the physical world, not in spiritual realms where everything is about subjective, conscious observer. It happens in the physical world. And then what happens is, all flesh will see. And like the Rebbe said many times, not just ene basar, fleshly eyes, but flesh. Flesh means you'll be able to touch it. An objective experience. It'll become a sensorial experience. It'll be undeniable. Like today, people will ask you, well, how can you demonstrate that scientifically? And the answer is, well, how can you demonstrate any, any philosophical idea scientifically? You can't, because it's, it's all, <laughs> the scientific method only really helps for, for gathering and interpreting empirical evidence. It doesn't really do much when it comes to abstractions. And that's not, that's not a unique uh, limitation when dealing with, with religion. It's, it's any philosophical idea, like morality or, or beauty or... Truth, how do you determine any of those things empirically or scientifically? You can't. I mean, those are the recognized limitations of science. But what happens when Mashiach comes is that morality will become empirical. That your flesh will objectively sense and observe truth. Which is a total, not only it's a total paradox, it is the paradox, the ultimate paradox. Of course you can, because Mashiach is coming, and we see it increasingly more clearly. But hold on, I'm in the middle of a sentence. Chassidus in general, and Chabad Chassidus in particular, is, and all of, do you guys remember the sentence? And all embracing. All embracing what? Worldview and way of life, which sees the central purpose of the Jew. Hold on, I'm going to pause for a second again, and I'm just going to point something out. We just defined Chassidus 
as a worldview and a way of life, okay? Tell me about that worldview and a way of life. Uh, it's a way of looking at a Jew. You, you follow that? No matter what I say after this, what we already established is the, the definitive quality or characteristic of chassidus is it is a way of understanding Jewishness. In other words, it doesn't say it's a way of looking at Hashem, or it's a way of looking at Torah, or it's a way of looking at the purpose of the world. First and foremost, what does it say? How to look at a Jew. That is highly significant. It is a way of understanding a Jew. Primarily, which Jew is the one that matters most? For you. Right. Okay. So let's continue. Since in general... And Chabad in particular is an all-embracing worldview and way of life, which sees the central purpose of the Jew as the unifying link between creator and creation. Period. That's the sentence. Full stop. What is Chassidus? It is a way of thinking and living, paraphrasing in my own English now, is a way of thinking and living which is all about how the Jewish people, particularly this Jew right here, bridges creator creation, infinite finite, spiritual material, all the paradoxes, we live in that paradox. We are that paradox. So, bottom line. The Al-Qaeda went to prison for 53 days. Charges were treason. The punishment on the table was execution. And the entire purpose of it was to establish that a certain truth needed to be revealed to the world. Not that the truth needed to become true, it was always true, but the truth needed to become revealed to the world. And that not only it needed to become revealed, but it needed to be spelled out pretty clearly. Because the Al-Tarebbe's crime was not just he was saying the truth, but he was saying it in terms that people could actually understand. Meaning Chabad, Chochmah bin Adas. He was explaining it in ways that people could actually understand. And he was exonerated. The heavenly court said, it's good, continue doing it. Not only it's good like, yeah, it's a nice thing, why not? No. You understand what the, the burden of proof for the defense was it had to be established that if these truths are not revealed, there will be no continuity to the Jewish people. Okay, that was the, we're all aware of that? There's a core Chabad group over here. You're all familiar with the famous parable. The son of the king was dying, and the father, the, the king, was looking for a cure, and a wise man came to him, and he said, there is one jewel, if you crush it and you mix it with water, it forms a medicine, and that could uh, save your son. But the problem is, the only place where we know where to find that jewel is the centerpiece of your crown, it's your crown jewel, and your son is so sick at this point, we don't even know if he'll be able to imbibe the liquid. It may just trickle off of his chin and fall on the floor. 
And the king says, if I don't have a son, then what purpose of my crown is my crown? Go ahead, crush the jewel, and do it. Right? So the point, and who, who made up that metaphor? The Altareb himself. And what was the point of the metaphor? That it's life and death. That it's life and death. If it wasn't life and death, it would never have been justified. If the Altareb was just saying, well, a lot of people enjoy chesidus. <laughs> sorry, sorry. You're not allowed to go dip into the private stock and bring out the secrets that have been sitting in heaven and start sharing them with the masses just because some people like it. No, not good enough. It had to be established that we could not survive without it. So, chassidus is something we cannot survive without. What is chassidus? Chassidus in general, Chabad chassidus in particular, is an all-embracing worldview and way of life which sees the primary purpose of the Jew as the unifying link between creator and creation. In other words, if you don't know that, you cannot live. This is not just interesting or inspiring or it enhances my Judaism. If I don't know this truth about myself, about what I am and the, the, the purpose that I serve and what I do, for Hashem in this world, we can't go on. We can't function. We cannot live. So we've, we've come to a point where we do not have the luxury to play coy about these, these facts. The Rebbe took pains to elaborate and to, to explain these ideas. And we're going to play around and we're going to speak in hints. Or when we do hear the Rebbe saying something great, we'll throw it back on the Rebbe and say, no, Rebbe, you were only talking about yourself. <sighs> After Chof Ches Nissen, when the Rebbe said, I'm giving it over to you, I don't know if people have seen the video, but a woman came to the Rebbe, she was crying. Her son died. She said, Rebbe, I want to see my son again. To her, Mashiach meant she'll see her son again. To all of us, Mashiach means different things. For this woman, it meant the only way that her son would ever be reunited with her. And she was crying to the Rebbe. And the Rebbe, who spent sleepless nights caring about every Jew, and, and we know that the thousands of stories about how the Rebbe would take concern in people's individual lives whether it was a health issue or, 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 or financial or, or a child's education. So we know the Rebbe's compassion as a loving father. And for the Rebbe to say to this woman, I spoke clearly, I told you. If it's to, to happen, it must be done by you and you. And the Rebbe was pointing around. And this person and this person, the Rebbe was pointing to all the people around. Now, this woman's grieving. Just tell her, fine, you know, I didn't mean it. I just told the chassidim because I wanted to rile them up. But really, don't worry. I'll still bring Mashiach. Don't worry. But the Rebbe didn't do that. The Rebbe told her, I said the truth. And it's not even a new idea. I've been saying this since day one. You've got to do it. So I just want to finish with one thing. And I want to tell you, 
we've been speaking a lot about this idea of subjectivity and objectivity. And that ultimately, it's not enough to see it, you got to be it. And that's why, at the end of the day, it's not about words and ideas, it's about lived experience. The Jewish people began, we became the Jewish people because of a shared experience. When we stood at Har Sinai and we experienced a revelation, and it was a multisensorial experience. In fact, it was synesthetic because we saw the sights, we heard the sounds. So when Torah was given, it wasn't a Torah class. We weren't taught Torah. We experienced Torah as a, as a, as a lived experience. And, and, and precisely because it was a lived experience, everyone was there, man, woman, and child. Because if it's based on transmission of information, then you break it up into different categories and different tiers, different groups, higher level, lower level. But when it's a lived experience... Everybody can be witness to the same thing. Whatever they take in, subjectively, okay, that's one thing. But objectively speaking, everyone was present. Equally present. Irregardless of the difference in their subjective interpretation of what they had lived through. And that's what made us a people. The lived experience. When Meshach Rabbeinu turned 120... When he knew he was going to leave this world, there was something he was very concerned about, and that was coming generations that had not had the Matan Torah experience. They would be able to learn Torah, but they didn't, they didn't have the Matan Torah experience. So even if you have a great teacher who could explain the ideas to you, but they didn't have that objective, sensorial experience. They didn't have the kinesthetic experience that was grounded in their bodies. It was, it was all mental. It was all intellectual. And so what did he do? In Parshish Ve'yelech, on the last day of his life, Meshach Rabbeinu said, we got a new mitzvah. And that is, every seven years, the year after Shemitah, the agricultural sabbatical year in the land, once we enter the land, we're going to get the entire Jewish nation together, men, women, and children. They're going to come to the base of Migdash. They're going to physically go to the same location. And there's going to be a Torah reading. And the king is going to read the Torah. The king is going to represent me. Meishur Rabbeinu is saying, the king is going to be, he's going to stand in my stead. And he's going to read from the Torah. And you know what the Rambam says about Hakel? He says that you have at this public Torah reading, you have Chachomim Gedelim, for whom Torah study is, for them, what is Torah study? It's learning deep analysis of uh, the, the, the oral tradition, the laws. So they're standing at a Torah reading, like, what is it? Like, that's, like, that's like for Cheder kids. In Cheder, you read Psukim of, of Chumash. So the Chachamim Gedelim are there. It's like, it's not really learning for them on their level. And then the Ramam says, you have Gedim who do not understand Hebrew, meaning new converts who haven't learned Hebrew yet, so they can't follow the Torah reading. And then it says you have people who physically can't hear. It wasn't a PA system. You know, they, they, they couldn't hear the Torah reading. So you have all types of groups. You have people who can hear, but it's beneath their level of study. You have people who can hear, but they can't understand. It's like too high for them. We should take them to like a side classroom and you know, 
give them a like a chayenu and let them read the English. And then you have people who can't even hear. And yet it doesn't matter because it's not a Torah class, it's an experience. Just like Matan Torah wasn't a Torah class, it was an experience. And that's what Meshur Rabbeinu set up. He said, if the Jewish people will have this once every seven years is enough to, to keep it fresh, um, then we'll be able to go on. Because otherwise, it'll just become ideas. And ideas, sometimes we lose touch with them. But if we have a way of having a lived experience, and, and it's... You have to go somewhere. It's like the trip is part of it. You have to go to Yerushalayim, and you're standing in the base of Mikdash, and you're getting smushed. There's, everyone is, the whole nation is there. There's nowhere to stand. There's no place. Okay. So it's a physical experience. It's, it's sensorial. It's somatic. Now, when the Rebbe would fabreng, that was a kinesthetic somatic, sensorial, physical, bodily experience. The main thing was to get smushed. If you think you understand, you don't understand. Maybe afterwards, Rabbi Yoel's Chazorah, you'll try to pick up a little bit here and there, and then you start learning what the Rebbe said. But the Rebbe's Fabrengen isn't for learning, it's for getting smushed. There's such a story, Zalman Posner, he came for Yud Beis Yud Gimel Tamuz, and he stood far off, he stood by the speakers so he could actually hear. You know, Salman Posner translated part of Tanya. So he was a real intellectual. He could actually appreciate and follow a Fabrengen and actually enjoy the Rebbe's words instead of getting smushed. And the next day, the Rebbe asked him, like, where were you? I was looking for you. He's like, I wanted to actually hear the Rebbe. And the Rebbe told him one, one day a year, because he used to come in, Yud Beis Yud Gimel Thomas, that was his day. He says, once a year you have an opportunity to clear away the crassness of the body and you decide to stand far away. In other words, the Rebbe told him the point of the Fabrengen isn't to hear the words. So afterwards they'll put out the Hanacha, you'll learn the transcript, and then that's time for study. But the Fabrengen is all about the smushing. So he tried to stand away from the smushing so he could hear the words. No, the Fabrengen is to get smushed and not to hear the words. And then the next day you'll learn the transcript and you'll, and you'll find out what the words were. So the Rebbe's Fabrengen was somatic, kinesthetic, physical, embodied godliness. And like Moshe Rabbeinu, took measures that those who did not experience Har Sinai would have a physical Jewish experience, the Rebbe made sure that we would also have a lived experience of Judaism. And that's why the Rebbe revived Hakel and said every seventh year, the Hakel year, you make gatherings. Gatherings, bring your body. Come to some place. It's like in school when you have a field trip. Close the books, we're not going to learn today. We're going to get on the bus, we're going to go somewhere. You may not remember a word that you learned all year. But you know what you remember? You remember the field trip. Oh yeah, I remember that trip, the eighth grade trip, yeah. And I had lunch while sitting by the fountain. Like this, you, you don't forget it because you lived it. You lived it. So that's what Hakil is. Hakil is the Rebbe was saying, make gatherings. Get out of your head, get into your body, 
have an objective experience, not a subjective experience that's going to be based on your ability to appreciate it. An objective experience where you bring your body and you just be there in that place. Like, a week from now, half of you will not be able to repeat one sentence that I said tonight. But you know what? You will have the value of having been in the room, experienced the energy. Being, just being in this, in this place, in this space. That's why, by the way, they tell you, as a communicator, people don't remember what you said. They remember how you made them feel. They remember the energy. They don't really necessarily remember words. So Hakil is about that, having that objective experience. Get out, go somewhere, gather somewhere, bring your body, bring many bodies. And that's why, by the way, Achtas Yisroh, unity of Jews, that's not the main concept of Hakil. That's just an indication that you're hakaling correctly. Because think about it. If indeed it's an objective experience, then there should be multiple different types of personalities who are having subjectively different experiences, but they're all present having the identical objective experience. So the diversity of the crowd is just an indication that there's an experience that's big enough that it doesn't really matter how much of it you're processing, you're still there. Like the Rebbe's Febrengens. You had Talmide Chachamim, Ge'oinim, Rosh Hashivas, who understood a certain depth, what the Rebbe was talking about, that was for them incredibly unique. They, 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 they gravitated toward the Fabrengen because it was like, it was, it, it was an unusual level of, of, of stimulation, just intellectually, they were able to experience. And then you had other people there, maybe they spoke Yiddish, but they, they, when the Rebbe would start bringing in different Gemaras and Chazal, they couldn't follow that. They couldn't follow that. And then the other people, they didn't speak Yiddish. So they didn't know what the Rebbe was saying at all. In the weekdays, maybe you have simultaneous translation, a little earbud, but Shabbos? A person who didn't understand Yiddish, what was he doing at the Rebbe Shabbos Fabrengen? There were hundreds of people standing there. What were they doing? Who didn't understand what the Rebbe was saying? It wasn't a Torah class. It was an objective experience. And that's what Hakil is. So the Rebbe took precautions that once there will come a time when we do not have the Rebbe's Fabrengen in 770. See, as long as you have the Rebbe's Fabrengen in 770, you have the quick fix. If somebody needs an objective experience, just grab them, put them in 770, bam, that's it, indisputable. You don't have to explain anything. But the Rebbe took precautions that we would be able to have lived, objective, somatic, kinesthetic Jewish experiences until Mashiach comes. And then the whole world will become one big 
empirical revelation of, of God. You understand the role that Hakel fills? You understand why Moshe Rabbeinu was so careful to make sure that this Parshas Vayelech, last day of his life, why Moshe Rabbeinu needed to make sure that this should be instituted? And why our Moshe Rabbeinu, why the Rebbe made sure that we should have this, this tool? You understand that the, the, the function, the vital function that it fills? Yeah? Okay, so then I only need you to understand one more concept. It'll take me 30 seconds. Hakel has to have a melech. That's how it was done. In the Beis Hamikdash, you, you have a king. The king would read from the Torah. It's part of the thing. Hakel has to have a king. Even if you don't know what the Rebbe said, everyone here who's been following me tonight should be able to figure out what the Rebbe said. In the hakel that we do, when you make a gathering, you say, uh, let's get together uh, Shabbos afternoon at so-and-so's house and eat licorice. And you'll say a 30-second Dvar Torah. That counts as a hakel, right? Okay. Or you can go crazy. You say, let's take over Times Square. Whatever. It doesn't matter. Let's rent a boat. <laughs> Whatever you want to do. Okay? You're unlimited. You guys are Rebbe's. You guys can do anything. You can do what, as big of a hakel you want. You can do hakel on the moon. You can do it literally. No problem. My one question for you is, even if you don't know what the Rebbe said, you should be able to figure out what the Rebbe said. When you make hakel, hakel has to have a king. Who is the king? Who did the Rebbe say is the king at your hakel? hear what she said? You are the Hakel king. Which is why I took one for the team when that sugar and shimmy wine bomb got me dressed up as a king. <laughs> I call him the Meshuggah, but he got me to do it. So who's crazy? And he fought dirty. He said, I heard a class that you gave about how we have to give children lived experiences. They have to have hands-on Yiddishkeit. I was like, yeah, totally. He's like, so Hakel, we have to really show them what Hakel is. I'm like, yeah, we do. He's like, I want you to dress up in a king costume <laughs> on Eastern Parkway. In the rain. In the rain. <sighs> so if I could dress up as a Hakel king, I want you to know that each one of you is the Hakel king each one of you is Rosh B'nei Yisrael. Each one of you is the leader of world Jewry. And the Rebbe took care that everything we need until Mashiach comes, we've, we've got it already. Maybe we're not fully aware of it, therefore we don't fully use it, but we've got it already. We've got it already. So just stop with the false humility. Stop denying your royalty. Stop denying your godliness and your power. It's just, it's, it's selfish. It's immature. You've got to get over it and just accept it already that 
you're the one who's going to bring Mashiach. For the whole world. You can't put that back on the Rebbe. The Rebbe put it on us. In fact, the Rebbe didn't even put it on us. The Rebbe just finally told us the truth, that it was on us all along. And, and if he could have gotten away without telling mm-hmm. us that, if Mashiach would have come in previous generations, then it would have just been a big surprise once Mashiach comes. But that's not how history unfolded. And it happened that we found out this news about who we really are before Mashiach came, because apparently in Hashem's great plan, that's part of bringing Mashiach. Part of bringing Mashiach is for each one of us to realize that we're the ones who have to bring him. Okay, a good yomtif. This is not the end. You guys can sing all night. But I'm going to get out of here. What? One more thing? What? Okay, you want to clarify one thing? Okay. I'm half like off my chair already. Okay, all right. Let's do it quickly, yeah. The stone from the crown, yeah. yeah. It's like a matter of life and death. Right, it's a matter of life and death. Yeah. Yeah, it could drip out, yeah. So, what does it mean it drips out? Which means that it's, it drips out. If it's like do you, do you know death, when the Altarebbe devised that parable? It was in response to a situation. The students of the Baal Shem Tev did not write down Chassidus because they thought it was too holy to write down. The students of the Magid used to write it down. A page of such writings were floating or flying through the wind down the streets of Mezrich, and the Pinchas Koritzer saw it. He had been a Talmud of the Baal Shem Tev, and he maligned the new generation. It said, you guys write down Chassidus, and it comes to a zilzal. It comes to be cheapened. How do you defend yourselves? And the Alter Rebbe gave him this marshal about the crushing the stone, and basically the page of, of, of Chassidus flying in the wind down the street is represented in the marshal as the medicine that goes down the chin. It doesn't get in his mouth. So you crushed it, and for what? Half of it ends up on the floor. And by the way, after the Alter Rebbe said that mashal to the Pinchas Koritzer, he came to the Magid's house, and the Magid said, Zalman, you, I, I was asleep, and I had a dream, and I saw I was in Bezdin Shalmaila, and they were judging my soul, and you defended me. And if you had not defended me, they were going to keep my soul and not allow me to come back to this world. So, you want to know what does it mean, the medicine that falls on the floor? I'll tell you right now what the medicine that falls on the floor is. This is really risky stuff to talk about. For millennia, Jewish leadership avoided speaking about these topics because it could cause confusion. You tell people stuff like this, and it could confuse them. I mean, this is like really wild stuff. You are the leader of world Jewry. The Tzimtzum Arishin was made because of you, and you're the only one who could heal it. I mean, and I'm saying this online. Who, who knows who could hear this? Like, and how they're going to interpret it. 
or misinterpret it. And even willfully misinterpret it. Maybe if I explained it beautifully. Let's say I'm, in, I, let's say I'm incapable of saying it wrong. I said it perfectly. Doesn't matter. Even if in theory, which I'm not, by the way. I say things wrong all the time. But even if in theory I was capable of saying it perfectly, yeah, but depends what the listeners are hearing. And they could, they could mishear it or even purposely mishear it and it could cause damage. So then maybe it's better. Just don't talk about this stuff. Come on, please. Don't talk about it. Just tell some nice stories. And don't, talk, don't, like, don't get in this. You are atmos. Like, it's too lofty. And people can't handle it. So what is the parable of the, the sun and the crown? and the, What does it mean? What's, what does the parable tell us? That not only we know people could misuse this information, they probably will misuse this information. And if it were anything but a life and death situation, we would avoid sharing this kind of high-charged stuff. But if we don't share it, we're not going to survive. We can't go on. So we're forced to share it. As scary as it is, as risky as it is. Don't pretend it's not risky. There are a lot safer things that I could speak about on a live stream on YouTube. A lot safer. But we, we, we don't have that luxury to play it safe. Okay. Good yomtif. Don't run away, though, because now is the real fabrengen. <laughs>